Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett led an elite group of scientists into the desert to develop a top-secret project known as Quantum Leap. Pressured to prove his theories or lose funding, Dr. Beckett prematurely stepped into the project accelerator. find himself in the past, suffering from partial amnesia and facing a mirror image that was not his own. Fortunately, contact with his own time was maintained through brainwave transmissions with Al, the Project Observer, who appeared in the form of a hologram that only Dr. Beckett can see in here. Trapped in the past, Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, putting things right that once went wrong and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. Listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 34, One Strobe Over the Line. Don't worry, Carl. Lions never use photographers to give them indigestion. How are you feeling? I'm fine. That's interesting. Because you look like a little country girl who's tired from a long day of milking cows. Right now, Byron is about two heartbeats away from calling Stuart Callie and replacing you. Here, take these. Al. Oh. Al. What? I think I gotta do a, a photo shoot or... Yeah, I wish it was for Playboy. Al. All right. Come on. All right, Sam. I mean, a man's gotta have his dreams. <sighs> Let's see. Our name is... Carl Granson. Al, I can't believe I'm here to do a summer high fashion spread. Have you met a model named Edie Lansdale? I met an Edie. In uh, three and a half days, Edie overdoses on a combination of pills and alcohol. Ding-a-ling. Helen. What are you doing? <gasps> no wonder you didn't come over last night. You're dumping me for Edie. She might be younger and prettier. But she won't be for long. You know about her habit. <laughs> Drugs are nothing to laugh about. <laughs> Who's talking? I will turn off the spigot, and we will see how young and pretty she is without her pills. You put something in her coffee, didn't you? No, I didn't give her anything. Like you didn't give anything to Yvonne Moncrief? If Edie dies, that's murder. And I'll make sure that it sticks. Now, what did you give her? Hello and welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. We have a great show today. We have two amazing interviews, one with Susan Anton, who played Helen LeBaron in this episode of Quantum Leap, and author John Peel. You may know him from the Quantum Leap novel, Independence. And we get to talk about a great episode of Quantum Leap. Ooh, did I give it away? I kind of liked it. It was like an old, before the serious episodes episode. Does that make sense? <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. It was it was uh, a little bit serious. It was about somebody dying of a drug overdose, but overall not as heavy as some other episodes have been. Right. It was definitely much better than the last episode. 
so you liked it better. What are your first impressions of One Strobe Over the Line? I liked it. It was in just a normal Quantum Leap episode. It wasn't as much involving Sam and Al. It was it was just like a normal Quantum Leap episode. I don't know if the more Sam and Al episodes had me craving some kind of farm crossover in this episode. Like I wanted Al to tell him something like, oh yeah, you knew her in junior high. I wanted them to somehow have known each other. And I didn't get that, which maybe it was okay. Maybe we will find more out about that later. I have no idea. In my imagination, I feel that they hooked up at some time. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Thanks to Carl telling Edie about his cousin. I don't know. I, I just wanted... I feel like they left it open. They could have continued that somewhere, but like they wrote it in there, but didn't continue it on. I don't know. Maybe they do somewhere. Maybe. You never know. (laughs) We have many more seasons to go. True. Al kind of made a weird face at the end. Like everything went well. Like there could have been more information there. But you do like that when Al mentions that everything's going to be okay. Well, I thought it was weird. Al didn't say... And she grows up to be a veterinarian and Helen is sitting in a corner in a mental institution. You know, like he didn't say what happened to everyone in this episode, which is kind of weird because he usually says specifics like and so and so went there and this happened to so and so and everything worked out okay. But Sam cut him off. Sam said, no, I know. Maybe Sam knew. Don't freak me out like that. Because then if nothing ever comes of this, I'm going to be so sad. I'm sure we'll talk about that and a lot more after the episode recap. This is Season 3, Episode 4, One Strobe Over the Line. Original broadcast date, October 19th, 1990. Written by Chris Rupenthal and directed by Michael Zinberg. I get no kick from champagne. Whoa! alcohol doesn't thrill me at all. So why should it always be true? Sam now knows how the Christians felt. One moment being a Catholic priest, the next being thrown in front of a lion. Sam has leapt into Carl Granson, a famous fashion photographer, on June 15, 1965, in the middle of a photo shoot. The lion, having watched Sam leap in, is agitated but the model tells him the lion won't hurt anyone. A nearby man and woman tease Sam, though, saying that although lions never attack photographers, they might nibble on the slow ones. Sam gets a glimpse of himself in the mirror. The woman who teased him, Helen LeBaron, tells him not to be so self-obsessed. Sam covers by pretending he has to adjust the lights, but stumbles, knocking them over. The model, Edie Lansdell, asks if he's going to be long, as her feet are killing her. Sam suggests a break. Byron, the producer of the shoot and the man who teased Sam, laments having hired her because she's been so lethargic and threatens to have her replaced with Cheryl Teagues. In a private moment with Edie, Helen, who is Edie's manager, warns her about Byron's threat and gives her some pills to help her get through the shoot. Edie is reluctant, saying they mess her up too much, being unable to eat or sleep while on them but eventually takes them out of fear of being fired and a promise from Helen that she won't have to take them again. When the break is finished, Sam struggles with the camera, but manages to take a single shot, calling it perfect. 
Byron is shocked, but after some goading from Helen that it only takes one and that Sam is trying to save him money, Byron calls it a wrap for the day. Sam takes Edie home and discovers she has several cats, helping her to get through her loneliness and being so far away from her family. Sam recalls his own pets on the farm he grew up on, or rather, the farm he visited while growing up. As Carl is actually from Queens, Edie explains that she doesn't want to be a model forever. She just wants to save enough money to take care of her family, send her sister to college, and buy her dad all the farm equipment he wants. She also wants to go to school to become a vet, so she can take care of Worcester, her first cat, when he's old. Sam awkwardly comments that Worcester is very lucky to have someone as beautiful and caring as Edie to look after him, and Edie retorts that everyone needs someone to take care of them, and that she owes Helen a lot, as Helen has been like a mother to her. Things get even more awkward when he asks about Edie's own mother, who died when Edie was 13. After a tense goodbye, Sam leaves and finds Al waiting for him while admiring a portrait. Sam is worried about having to shoot pictures the next day, but Al tells him to just get the assistant to set everything up and to show a lot of attitude. Then he'll get results. Al explains that Sam has leapt there to prevent Edie from dying of an overdose of pills and alcohol in three days' time. At the shoot the next day, Al is there to help Sam, advising him to make a big deal of everything. Sam soon loosens up, but has to call a break when Edie doesn't look well. The rest of the shoot goes smoothly, Sam even getting some great action shots when he has all the birds released from the cage. At the dinner, Sam tells some of Al's stories, making everyone laugh. The majority of the guests are happily drunk, but Edie is irritable and has lost her appetite, symptoms of having taken amphetamines. Helen lures Sam to a secluded part of the restaurant and tries to make out with him. Helen mistakes Sam's confusion for a refusal, causing her to become enraged. Carl and Helen had been having an affair and believes that he is dumping her for Edie, which is the reason he didn't visit her the previous night. Sam explains he went home and went to sleep, but Helen doesn't believe him and tells him to prove it by having sex with her right then and there. Sam refuses, and Helen rants that Edie is only younger and prettier because of the drugs she's taking. Helen laughs off Sam's shock that Helen knows about and is the cause of her habit, and has to cover that he himself has given it up when Al reveals Carl had popped a few pills himself in his time. Helen gives Sam an ultimatum that Edie is what he needs to give up and threatens that if he doesn't, she might cut off Edie's supply to show Sam how young and pretty she really is, or else accidentally slip her one too many. A little later, despite Helen's passive-aggressive protests, Sam cuts Edie off from any more alcohol and takes her home to rest up over the weekend. When they arrive at Edie's apartment, she offers him a drink, but Sam tells her it's not a good idea considering the pills she has been taking. Initially, she denies taking any, but Sam lets her know he found out from Helen. Edie admits that she wants to stop taking them, even having flushed all her own pills down the toilet, but that she always wakes up tired, so she needs one or two to get her going in the morning, which then results in her needing more throughout the day, so when she goes to sleep, she wakes up tired again. She also has the pressure of the job and Helen constantly on her back that they may be fired. Sam tells her that Helen is only looking out for herself, but Edie retorts she needs the job to help her family. Sam hugs her and tells her she can get through the job without the pills. Edie initially doesn't think she can, but agrees when Sam offers to help her. The next morning, Edie wakes to find Sam still at her apartment, making breakfast in the kitchen, and he advises her to keep her strength up. Throughout the day, Edie suffers from withdrawals, feeling scratchy and simultaneously hot and cold. 
Later, Al tells Sam that he had been searching Helen LeBaron and found that her company is on the verge of bankruptcy, and that three years earlier, one of her clients, Yvonne Moncrief, nearly died from a drug overdose, drugs that were most likely supplied by Helen. Edie believes she is hearing Sam talking to someone about her. Al thinks she may be hearing him, but it's really hallucinations and paranoia brought on by the withdrawals. That night, Edie searches the house for pills, finding some she had missed when she flushed her stash previously. Sam catches her and manages to wrestle away the pills. While wrestling, Edie kisses Sam. Sam refuses her advances, so Edie insults him by implying he is either impotent or gay. Sam carries her to bed and gives her a passionate kiss before telling her to go to sleep. When Edie wakes, she is looking and feeling much better. Sam tells her she has to get ready to shoot, which confuses Edie as she thinks it's Sunday, which she actually slept right through. At the shoot, Edie gets tired quickly, ordering someone to get her a coffee. Al insists that it not be given in a styrofoam cup due to styrofoam not being biodegradable. Sam is worried that Edie won't get through the shoots at the next three locations and the waterfall. Edie is visibly irritable and doesn't look very well, and Byron and the other producers consider getting another model. In desperation, Helen tries to give her a pep talk. This time, though, not even the guilt of not being able to help out her family if she's tired is enough to make Edie take the pills. So Helen instead sneaks them into the coffee that Sam brought for Edie, which she then drinks. Now high from the pills, Edie is more happy and energetic during the next shoot, which is near a bridge above a river. She playfully pulls her hair out of the bun, splashes in the water, and has a champagne shower. Initially, everyone is impressed, but unfortunately, the splashing of the water and the champagne enrages her co-star, Snowball the Lion, who goes on to attack one of the crew and then chases after Edie. Edie passes out from the pills and alcohol she has taken, right in front of the lion. Al, who can be seen by Snowball, manages to distract the lion until Sam arrives. He is able to hold him off using a chair, which he saw in circus movies, and the lion's trainer calms him, puts his chain back on, and leads him away. Sam angrily tells everyone that Helen slipped something into Edie's drink, which she denies, but when he threatens to have her charged with murder and have it stick if Edie dies, Helen admits to giving her black beauties, uppers, and doors and fours, downers. Sam has some of the crew call an ambulance and search for a first aid kit. He wakes Edie and forces her to stand, walk, and talk about her farm and where she'd like to be a vet so that she doesn't relax to the point of her heart stopping. The ambulance takes Edie away and Helen tries to convince everyone she can get someone better than Edie. But all the producers and models are so disgusted they turn their backs on her and walk away, signifying the end of her career. Sometime later, a recovered Edie visits Sam at his loft to thank him for everything he did to help her. She is on her way to the airport to get a plane back to Indiana. Edie asks if Sam goes back to visit his cousin, and Sam replies that he can't go as often as he'd like. She gets the name of his cousin, Sam Beckett, says that's a good name, and offers to visit him if she goes to Elkridge. Edie wonders why Sam didn't take advantage of her that night in her apartment, but can't come up with an answer when Sam asks if he was supposed to. Edie gives Sam a parting kiss and leaves. Al tells Sam that everything turns out fine for her, as Sam confidently replies that he already knows this because she's going home. And then he leaps. And that recap was by Hayden. Thanks, Hayden. Yes, thank you very much. Great job reading it, Heather. Thanks. So let's talk a little bit about One Strobe Over the Line. I'm glad that 
I think I already said it, but I'm glad that uh, it was a more lighthearted. It, you know, the other ones were pretty heavy when you're calling a drug overdose episode lighthearted. <laughs> but no, I mean, obviously, drug addiction is a very serious thing. But I liked how it was cut and dry quantum leap. Sam comes in, saves the day, leaps. It's always good when he saves the day. And leaves. Yep. Those are my favorite parts. I really like this episode. It was pretty good. The acting was really good in this episode. Susan Anton was great always. And I really like Marjorie Monaghan, who played Edie. I really like her because uh, she's in a Star Trek Voyager episode called Heroes and Demons, and she plays Freya. And in that episode, they like redo the Beowulf legend in the holodeck. So it's really cool. And she's awesome in that. And I really enjoyed her style of acting because it didn't really seem like she was saying lines as much as she was a real person just reacting to Scott's character. Yeah, I really liked her. And I liked her her voice, too. Right? Cool voice. But yeah, I think that the withdrawals were believable and, and the whole performance was great. Everybody did really good in this episode, even Snowball. <laughs> yeah. As far as I know, he didn't eat anybody. <laughs> it's crazy because I think the cool thing about this is throughout the whole episode, she has a tie with animals. So you know at the end when Snowball's uncomfortable and she's egging him on that something's wrong. Because the, the whole theme of this was she wants to be a vet. She connects with animals. You know, she was telling Sam in the beginning that Snowball wasn't going to get him. And then we get to the end where you can tell it's not her because she's egging on the lion. I never made the connection between the 20 house cats and the lion. How many times did I watch it? And I didn't get that. He says when she says, do you like cats? He goes, little ones. Ah. A.K.A. not the lion from the photo shoot. <laughs> I have to say all those actors were pretty brave just to be right around a lion. There was no composite shots of the lion and the people put together. They were just right there, especially Scott, right in the lion's range of eating. Like, I'm sure that that lion has been raised around people his whole life and is pretty normal, but still a wild animal. But still, yeah, exactly. If you notice, though, the chain was often it looked like Edie was holding him, but he was always on a chain until the bridge scene, but I'm sure there was just some sort of camera trickery. The bridge scene, they were able to do different shots of some of the lion and some of the people, and then the one with the lion and Edie was stunt Edie for a while, So, but they did it as safe as they could. <laughs> yeah, and the wrestling the lion scenes looked pretty good. Obviously, that wasn't Marjorie Monahan, but it, it still looked really good. Yeah, you could forgive that because it's a lion. Right. Well, no, it didn't it didn't look that different. I mean, it wasn't like a dude with a wig. It No, it was a lady with a wig. It didn't look that bad. I I've seen way worse. But it was believable, but it that would be scary even for the stunt people. I'm sure it was more trainers, not stunt people. Yeah. If I was the actor, I'd be like, "I'm out." <laughs> I don't know. I think I would be okay to be around them as long as I knew it was say like that they were taking precautions. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. You wouldn't even be around a dog if it was on a leash, no. let alone a, a lion. They'd have to put him in a post. Yeah. <laughs> those, especially those yippy dogs, they scare me. I like watch that video where the lion comes and hugs the person, and I'm like, I want a lion that comes and hugs me. <laughs> like, Oh, that was titled Don't Try This at Home or something? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of the times those are cubs that are rescued by the people and then they come back later and it just shows animals aren't well i don't think there's any real difference between a house cat and a lion except we're too big to be eaten by house cats 
if you give them enough time, they oh, yeah. have enough attitude that oh. they'd be like, I'm just going to eat you for dinner. But we got a chance to defend ourselves with a big lion. There's no chance. Yeah, their claws and teeth are a little bit faster. So this episode was about drugs and drugs are bad, okay? Mm-hmm. The last episode, it was about stuff like that also a little bit with alcohol and addiction. This was more about somebody pushing drugs on somebody else. Yeah, I definitely agree. I don't even like taking Tylenol, so. I think that happens a lot. I think they missed an opportunity with fashion models and maybe anorexia or bulimia. They kind of mentioned eating a little bit where she doesn't eat, but that was mostly a side effect of the amphetamines. Yeah, but this was something I haven't really seen a lot of. I mean, you see that all the time, even with dancers. Like in Center Stage, they focused a lot on on the bulimia aspect of just being a dancer because you have to keep up your appearances. But this was different because a lot of the things you see from models and dancers and things where your body is basically your money maker, usually... There are doing drugs all by themselves. They're not being pushed. So to see this girl who's, you know, a hardy country girl who wants to be a vet and doesn't even really want to do the modeling thing. I'm sure that's why she was tired and didn't want to stand around for hours. Like that wasn't her dream job. That wasn't her passion. That was just something to make money because she had a pretty face. She was like, well, I might as well do it. But the pill pushing it. Angle is not something you normally normally see in that situation. So it's kind of cool that they did something different with it. I think you're right. I think if they did do the standard body image and anorexia or bulimia thing, then we would have said, oh, they do that on every show. It's such a cliche. So maybe you're right. Yeah, I, I like that it was a little bit different. I did find it funny that she's exhausted and can't stand for a photo shoot that only they need one photo for. Well, he leaped in the middle of the photo shoot. Right. So he had been taking photos earlier, the Leapy maybe, but they yeah. they, were, they made a big deal out. He only took one photo or is it just know. for that setup, maybe. Probably just that setup. But she seems awful tired to stand there and look pretty. There's a lot of people out there that work really hard. Like I got to get up from the bedroom and come to the living room and edit audio. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, that's that's like ditch digging pretty much. Yeah. You have a really rough life, pal. But it's exhausting. But standing there and looking pretty? I guess. No, no. You had that job. Oh, I did have that job. I was a model. Oh, I guess we could talk about that, huh? <laughs> did your mom push any pills on uh, you? Black beauties, doors and fours, yeah. uh, browns, pinks, reds, uh, the crayons. Yeah, probably. No. <laughs> I think uh, I was a child model, so I had energy no matter what. When you're that young, it's go, 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 go until you pass out at 930 at night. Yeah, I can totally understand that. I guess I have a unique perspective because I was a model. Well, I mean, if you think about when we get family pictures done, by the end, we're all like, we need a nap because there's so many different poses and doing different shots. And that's just our little tiny photo shoot. There are some cultures that believe every time somebody takes a photo of you, they take a piece of your soul. So that could be exhausting. Wow. Especially nowadays with the selfies and the smartphones. and <laughs> Yeah, there's nothing left. Nope, we're all soulless. <laughs> the selfies have taken our soul. That's the quote for the episode. <laughs> if we named our episodes like Thinking Outside the Long Box did, that would be the name of the episode. And the selfies are taking our souls. When I was a model, I remember being very flattered and very excited that people were paying me to take my picture. 
But I remember also when people wanted to take my picture when I wasn't working, I would be like, I'm not working right now. Sorry. So unless you got some cash. And I was like seven, eight, nine, ten. I can totally see you being like that as a kid. I'm kind of glad I didn't know you then. You weren't alive. But it does give you, when you're uh, such a success early on, it does give you a little bit of a reality check growing up. And when you're older and everybody says to you at least once, so what happened? You were a model. What happened? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. I'm going to ignore that insult. Appreciate that. Right to my face. Thank you. I guess, you know, uh, some people are ugly kids and beautiful grownups, and sometimes it's the other way around. Or you could be an ugly kid and an ugly adult. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that's like. (laughs) I don't know. Our daughter is super cute, and that's all that matters. She could totally be a model. Everyone tells us she could be a model. She should be a model, but I've been there, done that. I want to keep her away from the business for as long as possible. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that would be fun. But I'm sure it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. And I got paid $65, $70 an hour. And that was in the 70s and 80s. Wow. We lived in New Jersey and all the work was in New York City. So it would cost more for us to travel into the city and come home than I I actually made doing the photo shoots. Because usually they're an hour, two hours. So, but the only thing with that is my mom was spending the money on the travel and I was saving the money in my account from the modeling. So, yeah, but that's such a cool thing to look back on. It was more for the experience and, you know, I'm sure it gave me really good self-confidence from right. that and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, you're not lacking in that department. <laughs> not a, not even a little bit. And my, the great thing was my mom wasn't a stage mom at all. She didn't force me to do anything I didn't want to. I refused a lot of work. I remember how I didn't want to do an underwear ad because I thought it was like wrong for people to take pictures in my underwear. Why were you going to be posing in underwear as a little boy? Like, like that's not a thing. Sears catalog. Sears catalog doesn't have little kids in underwear. In the 70s, they did. That's why? why they sold so many copies. I was very popular. Like old guys in trench coats would come up to me and I have to sign them catalog and stuff. It was weird. <laughs> Maybe that's why I don't like people with mustaches now. I, I don't know. But that's another show. <laughs> Some of my favorite ones were I did an ad where I it was for Christmas and it was in the middle of the summer. And uh, we had to dress in sweaters and give gifts to people. And the other one that I really liked was I did an ad for pajamas and I wore the Incredible Hulk pajamas. And the photographer kept saying, what sounds does the Hulk make? Make the Hulk sounds and look like the Hulk. And I was like, arr, arr. And all the other people were like dressed as Wonder Woman. So they just stood there or something. But fond memories. That's awesome. Yeah. Most of the clothes I always wore, they were cut up the back and safety pinned. Because they like did your makeup and hair before they put the clothes on you because the clothes is what they were selling. So they put you through the back of the clothes and then safety pinned it up. That's so weird. I think it had something to do with it would fit your form better that way too. Yeah, look better on you. Yeah, there's a lot of tricks. But I don't ever remember being tired modeling. But again, I was a kid. I wasn't a grown woman. But I think a lot of it wasn't that she was tired from modeling. She was just feeling the after effects of the doses that Helen was giving her from the day before. Oh, yeah. Because once you start taking drugs, you got to keep taking drugs. Just to be normal. Yep. I thought Sam in this episode was very manhandly. He was very like, grab the woman and throw her around, which is unlike him. Usually he's like timid around women. I didn't notice that. Really? Well, I mean, I, he was, but he was more trying to protect her, not advance her. Like his big brother role came out, not... I must romance you. Usually he's intimidated because he's trying to romance them or something. I got a spark between Edie and Sam. Yeah, when she's like, what are you, gay? 
And he's like, let me kiss you like I've never kissed a woman before. And go to bed. I'm going to kiss you like you're a man. <laughs> oh, yeah? You think I'm gay? Let <laughs> me kiss you. And then you have to go to bed because... Well, I think he did the right thing there because she, oh, yeah. she was trying to replace the endorphins that she lost from not having the drugs with some sex endorphins. Plus, Sam always does the right thing. He does. And all I keep thinking of in this episode is that something corporate song, I kissed a drunk girl. Have you ever heard that song before? I don't think so. Oh, it's a good one. It's always dangerous kissing drunk girls because there's a 50-50 chance they vomit on you. Those statistics might not be accurate, but in my experience... <laughs> That's why he never dated a girl that eats seafood. Ew. I kissed a drunk girl. I kissed a drunk girl. Yes, I did. Kissed a drunk girl on the lips. I let my guard down. <laughs> That's the song that I keep singing every time I watch this episode. <laughs> That's probably the best thing about our relationship is we have different tastes in music. <laughs> hey, what are you trying to say? Something Corporate is a really good band. Mm. Is that from the aughts? The noughties? I don't know. I think it was like 12 when that song came out. When you're 12 to 13, everything you hear, <laughs> you imprint on yourself and you love it. Just, <laughs> just look at my posters on my wall of different movies. Well, when I, was, when I was 12. In all fairness, when I was 12 and 13, I used to go, maybe even younger, I used to go to live shows because that was like the music scene. And so you got to meet all the people. I met the people from Yellow Card and Good Charlotte and something <laughs> Car on Corporate. You're just making up words. <laughs> no, they're bands. And people, okay. if they are my age, they'll be like, hey, I remember those people. I just went from 80s and 90s music to big band and swing and Broadway. Never looked back. <sighs> You're just old. Mm. Means I'm doing something right to get here. I can't agree more. So this episode starts out with Sam getting probably just scared and freaked out and he falls back and then there's like a big shot of his stuff. And there seems to be a, a special sack for his stuff sewn into the pants. It was quite weird and odd. I guess it was a 70s thing, a 60s thing. Well, you know how they have those pants that like Justin Bieber wears where they're like half tight, half MC Hammer? Maybe that was like the start of those. Could have been like the uh, Romeo and Juliet pants. Yeah. Back in style. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet pants. Shakespeare pants? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Those pants that are baggy at top and tight on the bottom. Yeah. They're for like squatting and dancing. Interesting. Oh, so maybe being a photographer, you might need squatting well, pants. Well, that was my thought. Okay. I thought Sam was dressed really cool in this episode, kind of like David Copperfield. You were like, I need a sack sack. <laughs> well, y'all, everybody needs one. <laughs> I've just never seen one before. Luckily, pants aren't that tight now, so you don't need the extra pocket. The only reason I know that is because I dressed like David Copperfield for about a decade. Not the decade I knew you. No. Was that the one where your hair was really long, too? Yeah. Are you like, there's pictures of you like sprawled out across your firebird (laughs) with your mullet and your tight jeans? I only wore black and white and combinations thereof. Acid wash jeans. No, that was was before then. (laughs) That was an 80s thing, not a 90s thing. (laughs) I don't make up the fashions. I just try to be a little bit ahead of them. Uh Uh-huh. I think my favorite part of the beginning is the fact that Helen tells Edie she looks like crap without actually saying those words. She says it nicely. You look like a little country girl who's tired of working on the farm all day or whatever. 
It's like if someone comes up to you and they're like, oh, you're not wearing any makeup today. You look tired. I get that sometimes. Do you? I thought it was odd that they made Edie a crazy cat lady. But she wants to be a veterinarian. That kind of makes sense. And like I said, it has to do with the lion at the end. So like she knows. Speaking of farm equipment and stuff, did you notice that her kitchen cabinets were painted like John Deere tractors with that John Deere green and yellow? (laughs) Wow, I didn't notice that. It was really cool. It was a nice little touch that they put on the cabinets. Like she did it herself when she moved in because she missed the John Deere green kind of thing. That's so weird. I'm like afraid of the outside. So, well, yeah, you you get run over by a tractor and it's no good. I like farms in theory. Like, I want to go pumpkin picking and corn mazing, but I don't think I could do the farm thing. Would require a lot of my time. You have to actually go outside and stuff. Yeah. Not for me. But it's good that there are people that are good at it. Otherwise, we'd be very hungry. (laughs) Hey, but you guys are farming. You've. You're oh, farming. that's true. We are growing pumpkins and corn right now in our front flower And box. sunflower seeds. Or sunflowers. You're not growing sunflower seeds. We're going to grow them because they're pretty. And also they have seeds. In our past, we haven't done well with no. fruits and vegetables. But hey, the pumpkins look awesome. The pumpkins. I it'll, it'll be really cool if we get a pumpkin. That would be cool. But the plants are huge. It'd be like James and the Giant Peach will have a ginormous pumpkin outside. Did you recognize the apartment from anything? I feel like it's the same one they keep using. <laughs> yeah, most notably Blind Faith. I'd say it was half Blind Faith and half new construction. Those windows and backdrop I haven't seen before that I can remember. But definitely the street that Carl lived on was the street from Blind Faith. Oh, yeah. Almost the exact same shot, too. <laughs> I really liked Edie's red Asian-inspired outfit. It reminded me of like the traditional Chinese outfit almost. I think that was big... In the 60s, too. Yeah, it was almost like a pantsuit, but Mm. not. It was nice. Yeah. (laughs) Al being a horn dog trying to look into a painting. Of course. We've got to get back to our horn dog, Al, after the seriousness of the last episode, because you can't be too serious for too long. It was very convenient that he had buddies that were fashion photographers that he'd helped out before, but at least he wasn't the fashion photographer. Yeah, It was definitely convenient. This one doesn't seem so far-fetched because he is a horned dog and he probably did have friends that were photographers for fashion models. He was probably like, hey, I can come in, help you out a little bit. Yep. What do you think of his copper jacket? I like the copper jacket. I think this is the second time we've seen it. It's definitely futuristic. It's interesting. Even more so because it's still not a thing here now. Even though I would wear copper, I haven't worn copper yet. It's not an easy color to find. You're like, Jean-Pierre Dorliac, I'm just saying, I haven't worn copper yet. I'm just saying we're friends and I don't have a <laughs> copper jacket. <laughs> <laughs> just to, just so you know. Great fashion this episode. It's one of those things where uh, I'm sure when Jean-Pierre got the script, he was like, okay, now I can do something. See, I feel like your fashion sense is futuristic 80s. Right. That's what, like... What you... the future would be if you thought about 2015 in the 1980s. Yeah, and that's your fashion sense. Nailed it. With your light-up shoes and your Pepsi Perfect and your everything <laughs> copper jacket. <laughs> I don't have a copper jacket yet. I want but a you jacket. want one. If, if someone was to give me a copper jacket, I would wear it three weeks out of the year that I could wear a jacket. Yeah. I found it odd that Sam was there to save Edie and protect Edie 
And when he was doing the fashion shoot, he was listening to Al about everything he would say about what to do and when to take the picture and how what to have the models do. But as soon as Al started mentioning that Edie might need to sit down and take a break, he totally ignored him. Yeah, I think he got onto a roll there. But yeah, I'm glad that Al pushed the issue. It was like, no, we really should take a break. So one of my favorite scenes in this episode was the kitchen scene between Helen and Sam. When Helen just attacks Sam and says, oh, yeah, prove it. And she's trying to have sex with him right there in the kitchen, which, you know, being that I worked in the kitchen for over two decades, that does happen all the time. Guests just burst in the back and just start trying to have sex. But usually it's the guy being aggressive towards the woman. But this time it was the woman being aggressive towards the guy. And I don't quite think Helen understood how that works because you can't just jump on somebody. You got to give them like maybe 90 seconds to get ready. My thought was, how do you expect someone to prove that they're not cheating by having sex with you? I think if you just had sex, it's kind of like if you just had pizza, you don't want pizza. Yeah, but if you were told, prove it, that you're not cheating, I'm sure you would do what you had to do, is my point. Unless you couldn't. Well, I guess, but they had all been at the dinner together. I don't think it was the point of you just did. I don't know. I thought that that was... But it showed her desperation, I guess, and... A little bit. It was kind of sad for her. She didn't know she was dealing with Sam, though. She thought she was dealing with Carl. And Sam's more of a, you got to really push me to get me to put out kind of thing. Yeah. I would Al say, was enjoying it, though. <laughs> yeah. Al would have been all over it if he got jumped like that. But I really thought that was a good scene, and I think they did really good in it. It was just like a standout performance, I think, from both actors. And I love that Sam still had icing on his back. That was funny. Did that really happen often with guests bursting into the kitchen? I assume kitchen workers, but I didn't I, I didn't picture you going there with the guests. No, absolutely not. <laughs> I think the most that happens is people come back to the kitchen looking for the bathroom and we're like, no, it's not here. You got to go out and around. Or like some, uh, for lack of a better term, a-hole needing his iced tea refilled. So he yeah. comes where he knows he's not supposed to be. But very rarely do guests burst into a kitchen and try to have sex. It's usually the people working in the restaurant having sex in the pantry. Yeah. Or the walk-in. Doesn't that make you just want to go out to eat? Or the freezer. <laughs> All the food is tainted. <laughs> Definitely dry storage because the door locks from the inside. I'm so glad you know. You're so well-versed in this area. <laughs> the manager's office. Uh-huh. I think that's it. Oh, in the dining room when the restaurant's closed. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Good times. Good times. Well, I guess the cooler, is no, there's no camera, right? So at least there's no camera in the cooler. Right. I'm assuming there's cameras everywhere else. Yeah. Technology always mucking up everything. <laughs> Helen definitely had that hot crazy scale thing going on where she was crazy but hot, which is okay. But as a hot crazy woman ages and... The hotness goes down, the crazy goes up, and when the crazy is more than the hot, then they even go more crazier because they don't understand why the world doesn't see them like they used to. That's a really good description of her entire character. Because <laughs> that pretty much sums it up. It's a little crazy that she was trying, mean, I guess she just was trying to make money off of women, but I don't think she was trying to kill them. Well, uh, she did kind of threaten Right. And she almost killed the other lady. But I don't think that was her intention. Like, I don't think she started out giving them pills to kill them. 
I think she was giving them pills because when you take pills, you don't think anything of it. Like when you are the one taking it, you're like, it's fine. I do it all the time. Have some too. Like you almost want to share the wealth. So I guess that was her thing. I love that I'm speaking from, like, experience here when I have absolutely no experience with this. When I used to be on Black Beauty's <laughs> doors and fours. I don't even know what that is. But, like, and I have a totally other point with that. But I feel like she didn't think, and even with her conversation with Carl, when he kind of acted appalled by the drugs, she was like, oh, come on. It wasn't a big deal to her. She kind of played it off like it was nothing. So I don't think she had harmful intentions. Not that I'm saying she was right, but I feel like it was like a slippery slope that she couldn't get off of at that point. Preying on young women by getting them addicted to drugs is pretty messed up. I definitely think that her craziness comes from her drug use herself. And the whole model getting older, not being able to do it herself, but having to help other women do it and they're not as good as she is in her eyes. That being said, Susan Anton in this episode was amazingly gorgeous still. Oh, yeah. I know. The first thing in my notes is Susan Anton too old for modeling, question mark. (laughs) Like, she looks... But you know what? Now in our society, it's not like that. I mean, it still is. You still see... There was an article the other day about how a woman was like a size eight or a size six or something like that. And they told her she was too big for modeling. And if you saw her, you... Would have I, I would die to look like her. Like, it was insane. I mean... Or and, you would have to be dead to look like her. Or that. <laughs> but I mean, it was like she had like a perfect body. But the modeling, the fashion world, if you watch runway shows, they literally are not allowed to eat. They can't... There's no way that their body has any food in there, even in their stomach. It reminds me of those hamburger commercials with the... <laughs> bikini models eating hamburgers and you know they're spitting them out yeah you're like <laughs> after yeah. the commercial because people that look like that don't eat hamburgers yeah or at least or fast food ones food right in general yeah i don't know i feel so bad because i mean it must feel good to know that your beauty is appreciated that much and like to know that you are on stage and people love you for your beauty and your personality on stage and like that must be amazing but to not be able to eat what you want and not be able to i'm not saying you should be able to binge eat mcdonald's every day but i mean like just to have that if they were to gain three pounds they'd probably have to go back on a diet and to have that kind of life and look at Edie, who in order to live her days she had to be on drugs every day like that's that's kind of crazy and she wasn't eating and she was just drinking and taking pills so in our society i think age is less of a thing but in modeling i'm not sure as far as acting now i think it's a lot different than it used to be because now we have such a wide range of women that are still powerful in their acting and still have such an amazing presence no matter what their age is but modeling do you see older fashion models I think once they become supermodel status, then their career has longer longevity and the older they are, it doesn't really affect them as much. They just use them for different things. Right. But the ageism is still a big thing in that. And to your other point, I like what's happening now with modeling to where women can look like women and be themselves. And you have what they call plus size women or what society would call normal Normal. (laughs) (laughs) women and uh, very beautiful women and they should be appreciated for 
who they are and not have to starve themselves or kill themselves to look like one body type that a lot of women have naturally, which is fine. You know, they can eat whatever they want and that's fine because that's who they are naturally. But when people don't eat and they force themselves to look like they're malnourished, it's not a good thing. Well, and this is kind of off topic because it wasn't about body shaming this episode. It wasn't about Edie's figure. I mean, she was naturally beautiful and it wasn't about what she ate and being on a diet. This was about drug abuse. But in the whole modeling fashion world, nowadays, the big thing is airbrushing. And Zendaya... I'm so glad that there are women standing up for this whole thing because she put out a picture of before and after they airbrushed her because she didn't want to be airbrushed. They made her thighs look thinner. They made her hips look smaller. She's, what, 19 years old? And she's got a perfect body. And they still made her thighs look thinner. Zendaya is perfect. And they made her thighs look thinner. Like, she's not juicy at all. <laughs> like she's skinny. They airbrushed Kim Kardashian after she had her baby. Well, now every other woman who has a baby is like, well, why does Kim Kardashian look that good after having a baby? Because someone airbrushed half her body out. Like that's not fair. That's not realistic. That's why we all hate ourselves for having a cheeseburger because we think that what we're seeing is it's not really what it is. Well, women's body images used to be up against hair and makeup, but now they're against hair, makeup and Photoshop. Yeah, it's it's a pretty. Did you ever see the Photoshop where they turn the woman into a slice of pizza? <laughs> no. Oh, my gosh. It was about how they photoshopped this wonderful model. And they were like, you should see what she looked like before. And so they did reverse Photoshop. And basically turned her into a slice of pizza. So they started off with a slice of pizza and turned her into a model? Not really. But I mean, that's what it it was supposed to seem like. But it was really funny because you're watching and you're like, wow, she was kind of heavy. And then like she keeps getting wider and then like she has pepperoni on her and then she becomes a slice of pizza. And you're like, that's really like pizza the hut. I know that's not what this episode is about, but speaking of modeling and the high demands of the whole business and... They only mentioned food a little bit, but it was because it was a side effect of amphetamines. Right. Which I'm sure helps in that world because I'm sure to this day, drugs are still prevalent. Well, everywhere. Everywhere. Right. But I mean, I'm sure in the modeling world, people are taking medicine to help them not eat. How many of these pills was she taking a day? I know she, at the end, it said, Black Beauty's doors and fours. But she was taking like four or five pills at a time. Do you need that many? My thought is in the 60s, they weren't as potent as they are now. That's crazy. And we're not going to talk about the fact that capsules don't melt in coffee instantaneously. But That was a little bit weird. I was like, that doesn't happen. They're made out of gelatin, so they would melt, but just not instantly. My whole point is a big, huge black capsule. In order for it to instantaneously dissolve in coffee, you would have had to have opened it up. Yeah, they should have showed a shot of the the classic shot of her opening up the capsule and pouring the powder in and then stirring it. But my thought was I kind of forgave them as they cut it for time that she actually stirred it for two minutes and not two seconds. Yeah. Like she was talking to her while she was stirring it and she kept stirring it while she was talking to her kind of thing. But we didn't see that. Maybe. Or she was just so out of it from going through withdrawal that she didn't care that her coffee was chunky. 
Yeah, it's like as she's choking on the huge pill that was just put in there. Yeah. Interesting. I'm probably spoiled in my young age. I totally didn't know that looking through the lens would show you the photo upside down. I was like, why? I had no idea. My guess is it's a single lens, so it's going to invert the image because that's what lenses do. Like the lenses in our eyes, we see upside down all the time, but our brain converts it to right side up for us. But we're actually receiving images upside down because we only have one lens in our eye. Well, but like I have an SLR camera and I think that's a single lens reflex. The viewfinder must have an extra lens to flip it around because there's no way that it wouldn't. But photographers had it a lot harder back then. What kind of camera do you have? I have a Canon EOS. It's pretty nice. It takes nice pictures. But back then it was film. Yeah, I can't imagine being a photographer with an upside down photo. But that's all I kept thinking every time he'd look into the camera is that's got to be off-putting. The only thought I had about that whole camera view was the director of photography probably when he saw the script said, ooh, this is fun. I get to work with a vintage camera and set it all up the way they had it back then and stuff. I think that a lot when I'm watching an episode when something comes up that's not normally in the series is when what department head or person gets to do something fun for themselves, something that they enjoy doing. And I thought the director of photography must have had fun with that. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I just I it never occurred to me that it was upside down. Have you ever made a uh, like pinhole lens in something like a piece of cardboard you can actually make a type of projector out of if you have the right environment? Yeah, I think we did something like that in school when I was younger. Did you notice the Michael Buble blanket that Edie had in her apartment? Yes, I did. <laughs> that was pretty cool. I don't know how they did that. Yeah, I don't know, considering it was in the 80s or 90s, I should say. I don't know what the pattern was supposed to be, but it definitely looked like his signature. So that was cool. I loved seeing the old console TV that sat on the floor. I had one of those when I was a kid, and it's always nice to see those. We had one for Nintendo in our basement. So I have a question for you. Do you think that Edie and Carl had chemistry? Carl or Sam? Carl. Carl, I don't think so. With Sam, yes. So... You know how I am with these in the future questions. So what would happen if like Edie came back and Carl was like, I don't even know. Like she asked Carl for a ride home and didn't act weird when her and Carl, like a.k.a. Sam, were getting closer. My thought was Carl, the leapy, was probably a nice guy, normal guy, but just the chemistry wasn't there. But the chemistry was definitely there with Sam. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. I I think that especially with them and their farm background and all that stuff that they had, it enhanced their their chemistry. The thought I had about Carl was when Sam in the morning making bacon for Edie Mm -hmm. and she asked where to come from. And Sam said that he tipped the doorman extra. Yeah. And my thought was he's pretty uh, free flowing with his money when it's not his wallet. And (laughs) when, (laughs) when these sleepies get back into their aura body space time do they like check their bank account and wonder like what did i spend that money on and they dispute the charges and hey he's got to do what he's got to do it's not like he has his own wallet yeah he's not doing it for fun as much as saving lives and putting right what once went wrong but it's nice to know that he has in most cases an unlimited budget so i have another question for you what are these photos an ad for (laughs) because byron is an ad manager. What are they taking photos for of her with a lion in 
white clothes. Like, there's no perfume bottle. I, I mean, they could always put it in later, I guess. I thought makeup, possibly, until she was made up like a gypsy. Right, with the flowing birds. So, most likely either clothes or perfume, I would say. That's my guess. And speaking of the bird scene, when they were doing those freeze frame shots to show you the pictures, they were blurry. Like, it didn't even look like, ooh, that's going to be a good picture. It was like blurred because it was an action shot and like they froze it weird. I don't know, it was so weird. Limitations of the technology at the time. Yes, I, I understand. But the overall impression, I think it worked right. And you could also forgive that in-universe because it's Sam taking pictures <laughs> instead of an actual photographer. <laughs> right. Can you imagine if they were so excited about his like bird releasing and when he was like, yeah, we got one photo, we're good. And then Carl gets back into his aura and <laughs> Byron's like, these photos suck. What happened to you? <laughs> like, Sometimes people are admired for their talent, and sometimes people's talent is made up because they admire the person who did it. I don't know what you just said, but it sounded good. Even if the photos are a little bit off, they'll think that Carl did it on purpose because he's that good. Right. So he gets a free pass. So I think Al's personality shined through a lot in this episode. He's staring at the woman for a very long time. And he, of course, enjoyed the whole photography thing, was ogling at the women. But the styrofoam cup thing was probably my favorite part of it all. <laughs> like, we're in a serious issue here with drug overdose and, and drug abuse, but freaking styrofoam cups, man, those, those things are... They make them angry. They come straight from hell. Mm. And I just thought that was funny. And Sam looks at him like, Oh, right. I got a paper cup. But like, what? To me, it's like that whole paper or plastic issue. And both are bad because right. plastic's bad because it doesn't degrade unless it's biodegradable plastic, which is awesome. Or paper's bad because I got to cut down trees to make it unless it's made with a renewable resource like bamboo or something. Right. But while I was watching this, I thought, styrofoam cups, you don't really see those much lately. They must have phased them out. And then I was uh, cleaning my mother's car for her the other day, and there's a styrofoam cup in there. And I guess, well, I guess people still use those and they exist. I, I didn't know. Well, I think it's still a free coffee staple. We sold them at the grocery store and you would see them buy like coffee urns that I don't even I'm trying to think of like where you would see one but I guess that like a social function or uh, like that the photo shoot where there was like the coffee I think they're still probably the cheapest bulk cups that you can buy I can't remember the last time I used anything styrofoam and even like when I go to the grocery store in the produce section I won't buy the zucchini that's on a styrofoam tray because that's stupid I'll just buy the loose zucchini I think it'll be cool to use them for crafts. I That's what I used to love styrofoam stuff for. I used to like them for McDLTs. It kept the hot side hot and the cold side cold. I missed that reference. Blank stare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I, styrofoam is bad. Folks, as Albie gets older, he gets more nostalgic about his life. And the more and more I just look at him and go, I have no idea what you're talking about. I was like, Dudley Moore. Come on, Dudley Moore. The name sounds familiar. It's insane. Okay, moving on. <laughs> I thought it was kind of symbolic in a way, but then I don't know how that really works. That Edie was wearing like a red skirt 
when she was being chased by the lion because I was thinking like bulls and the way that she was being chased. But I don't know if lions have that same reaction. But I just thought it was like symbolic that she was wearing like red like a target and she was being chased by an animal. I just thought that was kind of I'm just really looking for things at that point. But <laughs> obscure trivia for the day. Bulls are colorblind. Well, but isn't it something to do with red? But they're colorblind. So how does that work? It doesn't. We made it up before we knew they were colorblind. There are a great many beliefs that humans hold that are completely untrue and have no basis in fact. And that's just one of them. (laughs) Well, I'm pretty sure the whole thing about bulls and that whole thing is a topic I don't even want to touch. (laughs) Bull fighting, I think, is worse than styrofoam cups. I agree. But that's another show. When Sam leaps into her matador wearing a styrofoam uh, (laughs) matador's outfit. I've never had to deal with someone actually overdosing. Like, I've never witnessed that. I've never been around. I've I've never, like, known anybody that closely that that has happened to. But I didn't know getting them up and walking and talking was the thing to do. Well, in that case, I think they were saying that the downers were slowing down her heart so much that it would stop. So oh, right. it makes sense that if you walk them around, their heart rate would rise so you'd keep them alive. Right. No, it totally makes sense. But I had no idea. If I was faced with that situation, I wouldn't have thought to get them up and get them moving. I would have just thought that the drugs were making their bodies shut down. I know when I've had concussions, people are like, don't go to sleep. Don't go to sleep. Keep walking. Yeah, that makes sense. Because you don't want your brain to shut down and not power back up, I guess. Ever. Yeah. I didn't think it was as much of like a heart thing. And I watch a lot of medical drama shows, so you'd think I would know. I've only seen when there's a, a case of an overdose in medical shows or crime dramas, them getting their stomach pumped or them going to the hospital. But I've never seen this angle of it getting them up walking and talking. That's probably the best thing they could think of at the time, because in a hospital, they would probably give them a stimulant or adrenaline or right. something to get their system going and keep a, above dropping below life. My thing with that whole situation is Al kept a running total for Sam of her chances of survival. And when it reached 52%, Al was like, we did it. We did it. And I was thinking to myself, she's got a 52% chance of living. That's not. That's still not very good. I wouldn't take those odds ever. Well, I guess it was better than 40-something. Right, but 52% odds she's going to survive. Maybe, maybe make it like 92%, 93%. Well, realistically, the ambulance wasn't there yet. I don't think he could have cured her overdose by getting her to walk around. Maybe, but at least I think he meant it's getting better, so she's going to live. I really enjoyed that final part of the episode before the ending where they were doing the photo shoot on that bridge and around that bridge by the river. It looked to me a lot like one of the early scenes in Star Trek Deep Space Nine's pilot emissary where Jake and his dad, Ben, are fishing off the bridge that might be the same bridge i don't know but if it's not it looks similar i didn't even connect those two i know exactly what you're talking about in the holodeck scene why do you exist here it's a really deep question (laughs) there's some nice locations and if they're nice why not use them again and again so we talked about sam being on the farm he tells her what his name is and where he lives how old was sam in this episode in 60 something he was born in 53 so he's a little kid. So there's no possible future here. Most likely. Because I was really hoping. But then I was like, you know what? There's probably an age gap because he was probably. But once he's an adult, they'll both be adults. So you never know. 
I just feel like it was a missed opportunity because I wanted them to be together. It was so cute. Well, you never know. And not every relationship has to be romantic just because one's male and one's female. They were making out in the bed. Okay, true. That was pretty hot. <laughs> I love that you acted like I created that whole <laughs> relationship in my brain. You never know what'll happen in the future. Don't say that because then I'll be really disappointed in the end when there's no Edie Sam hookup. You definitely ship Edie and Sam. Yeah. You like that? Yeah. Okay. Hold on to that. We'll see. So while they're walking around, <laughs> Sam calls Al a dog or says that Al is his dog and Al gets all bent out of shape. And then he redeems it with that Al was the best friend a man could have. Al was like, okay, fine. But I just thought that was funny that Al got all bent out of shape. Like, what did he expect him to say? Yeah, he's my hologram friend. He's my imaginary friend. I'd like to see that one time where he's just completely honest about everything and see how that works out. Wasn't he honest in one where he was like... You're talking about MIA where he tells Beth that Al's still alive. Wait for him. No, that's not a thing. I don't know. I, I had just had this thought that maybe he did. But I know he told little Teresa they were angels. But that was as close as it came, right? Would you tell someone? If I had to, to save their life, but not otherwise. I feel like sometimes, a.k.a. in MIA. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. I liked Al's pin in this episode. I know we talked about that in the conversation I had with Jean-Pierre Dorliac, all the different pins and different things. This was one I hadn't seen before, I don't think. I might have, but it was a shark pin. It was cool. It was like kind of that rainbow metal. I don't think I noticed that. It's uh, good to go back and check that kind of stuff out. I was trying to figure out what the pattern of his shirt was. It was like camo feathers or something. I came up with regurgitation paisley. <laughs> it, was, it was such a weird pattern shirt that I, I'm still not sure. I kept watching. I was like, is it camo? Is it feathered? I don't know. I think a lot of it had to do with this is an episode we watched in low def because it isn't available high def that we could find. We should have a, like a petition for Blu-ray. It's the music thing. There was way too many cool songs in this episode. It is on Amazon, but it's not Prime. So I was like, $1.99? I don't know. I already own the DVDs. Is it high def on Amazon? I'm not sure. We usually watch on Netflix. I just want to know what a shirt was. You could email Jean-Pierre. I'm sure he'd let you know. I'm just, just wondering, what exactly is Al wearing in this episode? He has an amazing memory for his work and fashion of the time. No, I don't even think I would remember what I created, especially 25 years ago. So what did you think about the ending of Edie going home? Do you think that was necessary or do you think it was just an extra bonus? I think it was necessary. It was like the one extra push to know that he succeeded. But did she have to go back home and quit modeling to quit her addiction that maybe wasn't even her addiction, that something was just being pushed on her? No, but she didn't like modeling. She said, I don't want to be a model. I want to have money and help my family. So, Do you think she had enough to help her family at that point? Well, if you listen to Helen, she says people are paying you mountains of money. So I'm assuming she had money. Speaking of, I'm available for modeling if anyone's interested. As long as they pay mountains of money. Yeah. Like, how much is mountains I of think money? I'm available for anything for mountains of money. Pretty much anything. Yeah, I wouldn't say no to mountains of money. No. So overall, your thoughts on One Strobe Over the Line? It was good. It was good. I liked it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the characters. I enjoyed the actors in it. I thought the writing was great. Everything. 
was really good and I was very happy and pleased with it. Yeah, it was a really good Quantum Leap episode. I really enjoyed watching it multiple times. I think it was nice to have this episode and kind of get back into the groove of a normal Quantum Leap run after the unofficial trilogy. Even though there was that one episode in the middle that was kind of depressing. This one was a nice, it was just like a good regular Quantum Leap episode. I'm sure it's not a very powerful one in the grand scheme of Quantum Leap, but it was a really good one. I enjoyed it a lot. And like you said, I enjoyed the characters. I enjoyed the writing. It was really good. The acting was amazing. Moral of the story, don't do drugs and make your own coffee. (laughs) And no styrofoam cups. They're horrible. They come straight from hell. (laughs) Uh, It takes a lot of heat to make styrofoam, I'm thinking. (laughs) As promised, we have an amazing interview with Susan Anton. When the curtain came down on the 31st of July 2000 performance of the Great Radio City Music Hall Spectacular, the occasion marked not only the end of Susan Anton's longtime association with the production, over 5,000 performances, but a milestone as one of the most enduring and versatile performers in show business. Yes, indeed, it was 30 years prior that Susan Anton first burst into the public consciousness, and ever since she's been captivating theatre, television, and film-going audiences with an ingratiating style and easy charm that's found among only a handful of performers. Her five-and-a-half-year tenure in Las Vegas as special guest star with the Great Radio City Music Hall Spectacular and its renowned Rockettes preceded by a two-year U.S. national tour of the same production, makes her not only one of the most popular and glamorous stars on the Las Vegas Strip, but a true veteran of the theatre. Susan headlined her own one-woman show to sold-out audiences for two months at the prestigious Desert Inn Hotel and brought back to Las Vegas a type of entertainment rarely found there today. Far removed from the glamour and lights of Las Vegas, however, was Susan's early life. The daughter of a police detective and the eldest of five children, Susan was raised in the small town of Oak Glen, California, on an apple ranch. Each morning, she would ride her horse Domingo to a one-room schoolhouse, where, in her third year, she was one of only two people in the entire third-grade class. Her first foray into performing came during the third-grade talent show, where she played Hungarian Rhapsody on the piano. Oak Glen legend has it that Susan won the talent show that year hands down. Susan attended high school in the neighbouring valley of Ukapa, and it was there that her life began to change dramatically. On a dare from her high school boyfriend, she entered the Miss Redlands Beauty Contest. Entranced with the charisma of such performance as Doris Day, Susan Haywood and Ginger Rogers, Susan elected to sing the torch song Since I Fell For You. The powerful performance, aside from her intellect and obvious beauty, left the judges with no decision other than to award her the Redlands title. Little did she know, however, that the contest was a prelude to Miss America and the first step to what would become an illustrious career spanning two and a half decades. Susan appeared in numerous television commercials as the Muriel Girl. The campaign, hugely popular with the American public, was the catalyst for many appearances on the Las Vegas Strip. From that point forward, she appeared frequently on the Merv Griffin show and quickly became one of Merv's favourite guests. Susan made her Broadway debut by replacing Candace Bergen in David Raab's Tony-nominated play Hurley Burley, directed by Mike Nichols. 
Susan first emerged on the big screen in the film Golden Girl and went on to appear in such other films as Making Mr. Right with John Malkovich, Cannonball Run 2, and New Jersey Turnpikes with Kelsey Grammer. And as she has in every other medium, Susan has been a significant star on the small screen. For three seasons, she was part of the cast of the world's most popular television series, Baywatch, playing the role of Jackie Quinn. She starred in the international series Sail Away with Susan Anton, as well as the travel channels Las Vegas, produced by Susan and her husband. She also hosted Perfect Buns, one of the most prominent exercise infomercials on television. She starred in ABC's Cliffhangers, as well as her own variety show on NBC, presenting Susan Anton. Susan resides in Las Vegas with her husband, Jeff Lester, and together they own a production company that makes commercials, films, and documentaries. But Leapers will know Susan best as model manager and drug dealer Helen LeBaron from the Quantum Leap episode, One Strobe Over the Line. Please enjoy Albie's conversation with Susan Anton. Thank you so much for joining me today. Could you just first start off by uh, letting us know a little bit about how you got the part for One Strobe Over the Line? Well, um, it was, you know, as you know, obviously better than anybody. The show was a huge success, and um, every actor wanted to be on it. So I was thrilled when my uh, agent called up and said that there was interest in having me play Helen, this uh, woman that ran this modeling agency, and uh, who was not such a good uh, character. You know, she was not such a, um, a, a good person, I should say. And I was thrilled to have the opportunity to play somebody kind of evil because up until then I had always been cast as the, the, the good girl. Do you like playing a bad guy versus a good guy? Oh, it's a lot more fun. There's just so many more layers to it, and I think that there's a lot more freedom to it. So it was, you know, and this gal was really a little bit uh, off her rocker. You know, she was so obsessed with making sure that her modeling agency was a huge success. So she, she would stop at nothing. You were really amazing in this episode, and the character was very believable. Uh, one scene for me that stands out is the scene with you and Scott Bakula in the kitchen. Could you tell me a little bit about filming that? Well, you know, it was one of those really amazing serendipity moments that comes along once in a while. And the director had the vision, but he wanted to try to get that whole big scene in one take. You know, and normally there's a lot of coverage and close-ups and everything else uh, with a television series, with a show. And so Scott and I, we barely walked through. We had a rough idea of what we wanted to do. And then it was time to shoot the scene, and the director said action, and we just went for it. And it just all fell into place, and we literally only had one take. That was it. And now, which is really kind of fun, the little pieces of that are a part of the opening credits. So uh, anytime Quantum Leap shows, uh, Helen, me, I get to be a part of the opening credits. That's awesome. What was it like making out with him in that scene like that? <laughs> well, it was it all went by so fast. I'd like to go back in time and and uh, do it again and see and have a better better recollection of it. You know, it went by so fast. But Scott was amazing. He was just such a, a fun actor to work opposite because he's so present and so willing to just go with it. You know, he's uh, very available, very fun, and very supportive. What was it like working with Marjorie Monahan? You know, she was wonderful. She um, young actress playing this model who uh, my character just plies her with all of these uppers and downers because I need her to keep going. 
I thought clearly for somebody so young with having a, a pretty big role there where she had to have a lot of emotional uh, landscape to play, I thought she did a fantastic job and had a lot of confidence and composure. I enjoyed working with her. It was kind of hard to be so mean to her because she was so nice. <laughs> uh, what about working with that lion? Oh, I, yeah, that was a little scary. <laughs> but, you know, I had, when I did Stop Susan Williams, I had a TV series, and I I was always in some kind of peril on that show, and I was in a lion's den at one time with that, so, and and been uh, cobras and all kinds of, you know, dangerous situations, so I've been down that road before. Yeah, you've done a lot of things. I was checking out your IMDb, and uh, a lot of cool things. Uh, I noticed you were in Cannonball Run 2. Now that was yeah that was that was just one big party for about six weeks in the summer out in Arizona, you know Cannonball One had been a huge success and so Burt Reynolds was at the height of his success box office wise and and just as as far as one of the the actors that everybody wanted to work with because he was just so much fun and Cannonball Run was just that it was just a fun time and they reunited the Rat Pack so uh, in addition to having these, you know, just this great gathering of uh, of actors. We also had the reunion of Sammy Davis Jr., Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Shirley MacLaine. Um, they were all there, you know. So it was pretty. Anybody who was still alive was there to be a part of that uh, uh, Cannibal Run too. That's amazing. I'm a big Rat Pack fan. Oh my gosh! Well, I you know I got to work with Frank Sinatra and Sammy a lot as a singer because I'm I'm also a singer and. And I uh, toured with Sinatra for, uh, in 1984, I toured with him as the Olympic torch made its way across the United States into Los Angeles for the Olympic Games. So I got to work with him for an entire year, which was extraordinary. And, and I worked with Sammy many times, so had a little taste of the, the Rat Pack. And those guys were one of a kind, pretty amazing. Absolutely amazing. Very jealous. <laughs> <laughs> you should be. I was a lucky girl. So uh, could you tell me a little bit how you got in the business? I noticed you were Miss California. Well, you know, it was on a dare from my high school boyfriend, who I'm glad to say is still a dear friend of mine today. And um, I'm 5 feet 11, so I was, I was tall and shy. And my high school boyfriend, Keith, was a star athlete and, and played all the sports and had a lot of confidence. And he saw that there was going to be this local beauty pageant, and he thought it might be a good idea for me to give it a shot. It might build some confidence. And I thought it was a pretty bad idea, but then I saw that there was a, a talent portion, and my secret love was, you know, the idea that one day I could be a professional singer, and nobody knew that I had this wish but, but me. And so when I saw that there was a talent portion, I decided to enter this beauty pageant for Miss Redlands, a little town in Southern California, and uh, so I could get on stage and sing. And so I did that, and I ended up winning Miss Redlands, and then I went on to become Miss California, and then I went to the Miss America pageant, and I came in second runner-up, and after that, I decided that the showbiz bug had sufficiently bitten me, and I wanted to see what I, you know, see how far I could go and uh, what I could do. And so I started out um, finally getting an agent, uh, which was hard, uh, you know, because I didn't have any experience, but I, I got a good agent, and started going out on auditions for commercials and commercials little by little by little started to kind of, you know, I started to do a whole bunch of them. And then I got some national commercials, uh, most notably the Muriel cigar commercial. And that got a lot of attention. And so I was on the tonight show and 
on, on with Merv Griffin, and that's when Fred Silverman, uh, who was then at ABC, president of ABC, signed me to a deal, and things just started to go from there. Amazing. Yeah, I read you were on Merv Griffin about 30 times. Is that right? I was on there a lot. I was, I, I was like a regular. I mean, I'd even have my own parking place there. I was on so much. Merv was such a huge supporter. He was, you know, such a, 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 you know, a great fan and friend. And um, let let me just come on the show all the time. They invited me all the time. He thought it was pretty great that I could actually sing. And uh, he supported my talent and gave me a platform, which I'll be eternally grateful for. Very cool. And you're still singing today. Uh, you have a show out, a new show. It's called Susan Anton Already Home. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, um, it's really great. I have a band that uh, they've been with me for, we all started in when we were in our 30s, and now we're all in our 60s, our young 60s, but we're all in our 60s. And so we've been, we've traveled the world together, and, and we've you know been in each other's lives forever. We've gotten married, and people have had children, and we've, had, we've lost loved ones. And so we're a very, very tight family. And we hadn't performed together in a while because I'd, I'd been mostly doing Broadway and uh, theater work. And so uh, the guys all have their other lives and very successful careers. And I was getting ready to have my birthday. And I said, it's time for us to get back home, back together, and do some jobs just for us, just because it's what we love to do and how we love to be together. And so I uh, decided to call the show Already Home because that is like coming home when you get to make music with friends. And uh, we uh, debuted our show at the Purple Room out in Palm Springs. Uh, it's a great success. And then recently played the beautiful, there's a beautiful room that Herb Alpert built in um, Bel Air called Vibrato. You know, Herb Alpert from the famous Tijuana Brass. Yeah. And uh, his daughter, Eden, runs the place. And it's a spectacular club. Uh, so we did a night there. And it was one of those really amazing nights where everything just clicked and the audience was great and so now they want me to come on a regular basis like every three months um, an artist in residence which is pretty exciting so and then we're going to be playing uh, various other dates there's a venue out here in Las Vegas my husband and I live in Las Vegas called the Smith Center and they have a beautiful room so it's it's picking up steam again um, so I'm, I'm back out there with my band singing and, and we're just having the best time ever very cool. Uh, how can uh, people find out more about that if they want to come see you? Oh, thanks for asking. You know, there's a Susan Anton uh, Facebook uh, that's the the professional site, and we keep everything posted there. Uh, so these dates are on there and with always a link to uh, how you can get tickets and come out and have a good time with us. And the show is really great. It's not cabaret. It's uh, Our show is everything from, you know, Led Zeppelin to Mark Cohen and the Beatles, and it's the music that I grew up on. So it's uh, it's not a, it's you know it's not a bunch of um, you know old torch song ballad kind of stuff. It's fun. It's energetic, and I like to think it's thought provoking because I I appreciate songs that have great lyrics. You know, like um, uh, uh, John Mayer's "Stop This Train" and and just you know I, I like intelligent music as well as music that just makes you want to get up and dance. Very cool. You mentioned your husband uh, Jeff, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm a big Star Trek fan, and uh, I remember him from ah. <laughs> Star Trek Four. Very, very important role in that interrogating Chekhov. Yeah, the uh, FBI agent. Um, yeah, Jeff Lester, he's now a director, but, you know, God bless him. He was so, when Leonard Nimoy recently passed, you know, Jeff was 
deeply touched by that because he had such he had such a great experience as a young actor being in that particular star trek that leonard directed and it's one of my favorite star treks where the the whales let us all know what we're doing to the environment which is, is probably what is going on wouldn't be surprised um you know and i thought you know so it was fun because uh jeff did that long before i met him or knew him and so uh, when we started dating and, and he showed me that clip, I said, oh, my God, I remember you in that movie. You're fantastic. <laughs> and not to mention, awfully cute. Now he's a director and, and uh, making his own movies. Awesome. Yeah, funny movie and uh, funny part that he had. Yeah. Could you tell me a little bit about Spa Girl? Well, Spa Girl is a whole other um, uh, avenue for me that's really fun. It came into my life about a year and a half ago. I was doing a show out in Palm Springs, and uh, when I'm in a place for a long time, because I was doing a show for a couple months, so I find out where I can go and work out, and I, I found this really great Pilates studio, and so I was doing my Pilates, and there was a, a gal there who uh, became a friend, and uh, as the new year was approaching and, and the end of my engagement, she invited Jeff and uh, my husband and I over to her house. She said, I have a I have something I'm working on. I would really like to introduce you to uh, this 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 product that I have. And I thought, okay. And uh, it was Spa Girl. Spa Girl is a cocktail. It's a, a flavor infused vodka, but high, 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 high quality, um, all natural, 33 proof, um, uh, beautiful packaging. It's nothing like I, I don't like to say the other brand, but it's not like the other brand mm. that was on the market and is just full of sugar. Uh, but what that other brand indicated was that there's a huge market out there for uh, flavor-infused vodkas. And uh, so Karen Haynes, my spa girl CEO, and I'm the brand ambassador, uh, she invited me to come on board uh, the spa girl train. And so we are launching the end of uh, this month, the end of November, I should say, in Palm Springs in various uh, locations. And then hopefully we'll just keep growing and growing. It's uh, It's been a real labor of love, but it's absolutely beautiful. And everybody can go to spagirlcocktails.com uh, and check it out. Very cool. Sounds exciting. It really is. It's It's really exciting. What do you like better, singing or acting, or do you just like them both? Or, Well, I love them both. You know, whatever I'm in the middle of, I always, that gets all of my energy. But uh, I have to say, singing for me has always been, it's so immediate, uh, you know, so intimate, because it's happening there in the moment with the audience and the musicians. And every single show is absolutely different. Nothing is ever, ever the same. And it's never, ever perfect, you know. And it's the imperfections that make it make it more exciting when something uh, uh, strange occurs. You know, if somebody drops a tray in the restaurant or, uh, you know, whatever it is. It, because it just reminds you of how immediate it is and how alive it is. Um, so I, I love singing uh, a great deal. But, um, you know, making, making films and doing television uh, is, is a real treat because the people that you get to work with on those long, long hours, you get a chance to really make some of the best friends you'll ever have in life. Even though you don't see them a lot, you just you spend that kind of long, uh, those kind of long days together. You, you become really close. It's not casual. You uh, mentioned you did some theater. I'm very interested in theater. Can you tell me about what you've been doing? Yeah, well, I haven't I haven't done some recently, but the theater projects that I've been that I have done, I did Hurley Burley on Broadway and had the privilege of being directed by the great uh, Mike Nich Mike Nichols, which was uh, extraordinary. 
I was in the Will Rogers Follies on Broadway and worked, you know, directed by Tommy Toon, which was amazing. Wow. I toured, I would did Hairspray um, at the Hollywood Bowl with an all-star cast. Uh, John Stamos was Corny Collins and Drew Carey played uh, Harvey Firestone's <laughs> oh, husband. Wow. Yeah, it was really, it, it was extraordinary. And I, I was Velma Von Tussle. Hmm. Uh, and I had played in the Hairspray production that they had here in Las Vegas as well, which was a, a big production. And then I toured in the National Company of All Shook Up, which is a great musical with all of Elvis Presley's mm-hmm. music. Really terrific piece of uh, theater. Uh, and various other things, you know, a couple of white chicks sitting around talking and um, been approached to go out and do some uh, dates uh, with this other a musical that's been off-Broadway for a long time in New York called Cougars, the musical, a uh, story of three friends that uh, are of an age and, uh, you know, and is telling, sharing their stories. And it's very funny, and it's very clever, and it's very moving. That does sound good. Yeah, and so I'm I'm looking forward to that. There's there's always a lot of irons in the in the fire, you know. <laughs> Got to keep busy, right? You do indeed. Before we get back to Quantum Leap, there was a couple things I noticed you were in that uh, shows that I loved when they were on My Secret Identity. Can you tell me about that working with Jerry O'Connell? Oh my gosh! Well, you know he was just a kid, which is really so amazing. Now they shot that show in Canada. I didn't really know much about it until I got up there, um, and uh, it was. It was a real surprise to me, the whole show. The cast was so sweet, and every time I see Jerry, I just can't help but think about that he was that that little boy in that TV <laughs> series, and now he's this, you know, tall, lanky, wonderful leading man who is just turned into such a fine actor and so funny. Uh, but it was it was a lot of fun. It was a sweet show. It was a, a really sweet adventure. Yeah, I'm about the same age as him, so it was uh, one thing that I watched when I was that age. Uh, ah, did you relate to him? I did. Uh, I couldn't float or anything or fly, but... <laughs> that's the thing that's so funny about when you've been around and you've done as much as I have, there's there's things that you forget that you even you did, you know, because I've been really, really lucky that I've been able to do a lot of things. Going back to Quantum Leap. Yeah. Can you uh, tell me, like, where you did the filming? Was it in mostly sound stages, or uh, where was the location of that bridge in the outdoor where, where you had that great final scene where everybody was leaving you one by one? Yeah, uh, that was out in the uh, San Fernando Valley. I'm not sure exactly where, but I think it was the same place where they would do a lot of Little House on the Prairie. Uh, so we were really out there in the in the boondocks, and it was hot. It was a hot day. I remember that. Uh, about that, the the kitchen scene was actually there. I think that was at the Will the Wiltern Theater. Uh, there was some stuff that we did in in um, one of the the great old theaters in downtown L.A. Uh, where we shot a lot of that stuff and used the the kitchen and stuff like that. Very little soundstage work actually on that show. We were on location a lot. Do you have any um, other memories or stories of your time on Quantum Leap? I know it was probably twenty five years ago now, but. Wow. It's, <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's but, crazy. You know, I, I, uh, it's like you said, 25 years ago is a long time. But even now, now because, you know, the, the show is still so beloved and in syndication and all over the world that uh, often I will get recognized. People will still they'll come up to me and they'll say, oh, you're in Quantum Leap. I, you know, I said, yep. You know, so they, they remember. Um, but my overall memory of it was just what a well-run show it was, you know, that, uh, cause a lot of times when you're the guest artist, you step into 
uh, a machine that's up and running, and uh, sometimes you can feel a bit like you're on the outside looking in. But uh, this this cast and crew were they were so welcoming, and I, I felt like I you know really had a, a, a you know a wonderful uh, acceptance there. The Law and Order SVU is uh, the same thing. When I guest starred on that a couple of years ago. You know, these shows that have this long history and everybody has been working together for years. So it's uh, it's really great when they accommodate the guest stars and make you feel like you're a part of the family. Do you have some work that you've done that maybe uh, you thought was really good, but not as many people saw it as you would have liked? And maybe the people that are fans of yours can go check it out. Well, you know, I, I guess the the. the thing that would come to mind is actually my first film, which is Golden Girl. I played an Olympic track star. And the irony of that whole project was this is long before, obviously, Netflix and Amazon and all of that, where now we have their own programming. And um, back in the day when uh, these miniseries were starting to become very popular on just our three major networks uh, that we had at the time, ABC, NBC, and CBS, and uh, so I was cast in this film, um, Golden Girl, where I played a track star, and um, I was uh, being uh, fed a bunch of steroids, which was ahead of its time, so that I would have these super abilities, uh, so that I could win these five gold medals, and so this consortium of investors could make a lot of money. So the, the story is kind of... You know, there's nothing new. It kind of came to, to pass as it is. But the irony of the film was that it was a co-venture with NBC and Avco Embassy and uh, to be released first in the theaters uh, for theatrically. And then NBC was going to have the, the debut of the four-hour. We shot a four-hour um, piece. And they were going to have the never-before-seen footage and so on and so forth uh, on NBC on a two- or three-night you know, big special. Well, the irony was that that was the year that the United States boycotted the Olympics. And so our whole tie-in <laughs> with my film and the Olympics and NBC went out the window because I ended up being the only American athlete to go to the Moscow <laughs> Games. So a lot of people didn't end up seeing the film, but I was very proud of it. And Joe Sargent directed it, and uh, he recently passed away. And and uh, he had a lot of faith in me to give me, you know, the, the lead of a major motion picture when I really had not had, I didn't have a lot of experience. So I'm very proud of that film. Very cool. I will check that out, definitely. Yeah, do check it out. Well, it was so funny, too, because I had to train as an Olympic runner, and they got me, uh, my coach, uh, Tracy Sutherland, who was actually an Olympic coach, and he, it took a while for me to convince him to understand that I wasn't really training to go to the Olympics. I've never been so sore in my entire life. I said, you just need to make me look like a runner. I'm really not going there. And then when he came out to Las Vegas to train me while I was busy uh, singing, I was, I was working at night. Uh, at this, I, I don't know where I was at the time, at the Sands Hotel or something. And, and then during the day I would train. And so he came to the show and he saw me up there on stage singing. He said, oh, now I get it. Okay. And uh, that got a lot better, but boy, I was sore. I tell you, <laughs> that sounds like it. That sounds like that sounds like fun, though. Oh, it was. It was. I noticed you had music CDs available on your website, susananton.com. dot com. Yeah, that, that's called One Night. And uh, getting back to my band again, this was uh, up until recently when we got back together to have some fun. This was uh, a show that we did in Los Angeles about 
oh, six years ago, I guess, at the uh, Cinegrill on um, Hollywood Boulevard, which is no longer there. It's in the Holly, it was in the Roosevelt Hotel. But um, this was, we, we were there for a week, and the show was so great, and people were loving it so much that we decided to, the last night, to record the show. So we call the album One Night because we literally, it's as live as live can get. We uh, recorded the show, got brought in the big mobile truck, and had like 16 tracks or whatever. And we also did a, a video of it, which there's a, a few of them. If people go online, you can, you can see the, view, the videos on YouTube. Uh, and so that's the CD that's available on the on the website, and there'll be a Christmas CD as well that uh, it will be up there this uh, holiday season. Awesome! I love holiday music. Listen to it all the time. Oh well, I think you really love this one. Um, it's called Winter Wonderland, and it's it's very eclectic. It's um, it's traditional, but not you know. So I think that you'll enjoy it. Hmm. I will definitely check that one out. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, thank you so much, Miss Anton, for being on the show. Really appreciated talking to you. I really enjoyed your work in this episode, and uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Albie. It was great reliving my quantum leap. I felt like I, I took a leap again back into a really wonderful time, and uh, I wanted to send a shout-out to all the leapers out there. You know, Keep it alive, keep it going, and let's hope that they do a remake, because I think they should. I'm Peter from Hydrate Level 4. If you haven't heard yet, Back to the Future, the animated series is finally coming to DVD. I decided to start a new podcast, and for this new show, I needed a co-host that is just as big of a fan as I am of the first three movies. Who better than to ask Albie from the Quantum Leap Podcast? Thank you for joining me, Albie. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of Hydrate Level 4. Can you tell the listeners where they can find all this great content? The website is barrenspace.com slash BTTF. And uh, it's a nice little site. You can listen to our podcast there and get a little bit more information about each episode of Back to the Future, the animated series. And also there's opportunity to give feedback. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also like our Facebook page to stay updated with everything we put out. And also you can email us at backtothefuturetas at gmail.com. The TAS stands for the animated series. Clever, huh? So we hope to hear from you guys in the future. insightful discussion about comic books? Hmm. 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 How about movies? Hmm. How about television? Then listen to Thinking Outside the Long Box with Juan, John, and Gabe. Available now on iTunes, Stitcher, and your local computer. Calling all writers, do you have an original Quantum Leap story that you want to share with fellow Leapers? Well, now's your chance. 
announcing the Quantum Leap Podcast's short fiction contest. I don't control my future. You do. You heard it from Sam himself. Help Dr. Beckett leap from life to life, trying to put right what once went wrong. We're looking for your original Quantum Leap adventures about Sam, Al, Ziggy, Gushy, Donna, Beth, Leapers, Leapies, anyone or anything, as long as it's set in the established Quantum Leap universe. Here are some ground rules. We're looking for original stories that haven't appeared anywhere in print or online. Keep it to 5,000 words or less. We're not looking for your unpublished novel here. Email submissions to quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. And you can go to the Quantum Leap Podcast website for more details. The first eight participants will get a small prize. And the top three entries, as judged by the Quantum Leap Podcast team, will receive an autographed copy of my Quantum Leap novel, Foreknowledge. Winning stories will be read on the podcast. So what are you waiting for? Hop into the accelerator chamber and make the leap. Enter the Quantum Leap Podcast Short Fiction Contest now. Marjorie, good to hey, see Anna. you again. We've worked before. Yes, we um, have. One Further strobe away. over the line, I think, was your episode, right? Yes. What was your experiences? Well, as anyone who has worked on the show will tell you, it's it's an incredible group to be a part of. You know, as you said, the crew just adored Scott, and everybody does, and rightfully so. I had just moved to Los Angeles. It was one of my – I'd done some TV in New York, and then I came to Los Angeles – and I was, you know, I didn't know anybody. I was young. I was like, ah, and terrified of everything. And I got this role, which kind of stunned me. And then I, you show up on the set, and everybody was so, and especially Scott and Dean, very welcoming and just made you feel safe and cared about and, and wanted, which then enables you to sort of open up and really do good work. And they were just incredible. And he always said, you know, well, if you're on the lot, you know, come by and... Say hi, and I did, because I'd be on the lot, you know, do, auditioning and doing whatever, and you always come by, and they're always happy to talk to you. It was just an astonishing group of people. And still, to this day, one of my favorite roles that I've ever done. It was just, <laughs> it was just an amazing experience, and I got to work with Scott quite a bit, just because of the nature of the story and the director. And it was just great. And the, a lot of times you guest star on TV, and you're sort of there and people are like, hey, how are you? And you just go through the motions and they're kind of going through the motions because they've been doing it for so long and they know the characters so well. Not all the time, but often enough. And it was not the case at all. This was a, obviously a small cast, but they were really good actors and, and really committed to doing good work. So it was just amazing. Oh. And one of my, we, I've done conventions and that's where we've known each other before. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite stories that people ask me about and then, if you've seen the episode, and I suppose you've seen most of them, <laughs> we're doing this thing, and there's a lion. And uh, I was a model in the lion as part of this shoot that we're doing, and I get all speeded up on drugs, and I'm harassing the lion. The lion chases me. We're shooting this scene on a bridge in Disney Ranch, and there's the lion, who we've been working with for like four days. And, you know, the second day, people are sort of stepping over him like he's a big rolled-up carpet. And the, the animal wrangler is going, uh... This is a lion, you know, it's well-trained, but a lion. You are sushi to this lion, so just watch out. No, seriously. So we're like the, the last day, and the lion's been cool, but so suddenly I'm laying on the bridge, passed out. The lion's standing on this big table, like roaring at me. 
going to attend. Scott hasn't gotten there yet to save everything. But so they're having this conversation. I'm laying there, and the director and the animal guy are having this conversation. I'm like, okay, well, we want to shoot over the lion's shoulder. So we want to look down <laughs> from behind the lion onto joke? her on the ground because it'll be a cool shot, and we'll get some of the mane in there, and it'll be cool. I'm like, all right. But we got, well, it's like, okay, this is good, but we can see the chain. Like, we've got to take the chain off. Oh. <laughs> I'm laying there on the ground. Okay, let's see. My eyes are closed. There's a 2,000-pound lion, well-trained, 2,000-pound lion, standing on the table. There's 15 guys right off camera, but if the lion decides to jump off the table, nobody can stop it. <laughs> so I was like, so I'm sitting there going, all right, and my eyes are open just enough. So it's like, if this, if this lion moves, I'm rolling off the bridge into the water. And, was, so, and nothing happened, it was fine, but that was just the things that you don't think about when you're, oh, lion. Hmm. So, <laughs> so anyway, it was, it was a fantastic experience, and still, as a, one of my very favorite and it's a terrific show. It still is. It holds up really well. Ma'am, over on the side. My name's Janice. I'm from Pennsylvania. And all of the panels have talked about how great it was to work with Scott. And I'd really like to hear, because Dean's character of Al didn't really have, wasn't able to have the same interaction with the characters each week. So I'd like to hear some stories about your then off-scene interactions with Dean. I stopped him. <laughs> well, I can say that uh, because, as you said, we didn't, you know, by definition, didn't have as much interaction with Dean because we couldn't see him. And I was familiar with his character, and I knew uh, his earlier work, and then he was a tremendous actor, and the character is so, you know, funny and odd and irascible and everything. And I didn't know what to expect when I met him. And I have to say, he was so kind, was the word that just stayed in my head the whole time. He was just very, like, gentle and very kind, just talking to you. And, and I didn't, you know, I didn't do scene work with him or anything because I didn't interact with him. But just around, you know, when he'd be on the set or whatever, he was just a very quiet, kind, gentle man when, whenever I saw him. He was really remarkable. And, and because of the character that he plays you don't I didn't really expect that <laughs> this is Paul Lake and you're listening to the quantum leap podcast Helen was a great character in this episode so it was really great to hear Susan Anton's take on this episode and hear about her point of view and I'm really looking forward to the Christmas album and the amazing part about that kitchen scene that it was all in one take and they did it once and it worked. Well, that just is incredible. That just speaks of their acting abilities. So much like uh, Sam when he was a photographer, the director was like, we got it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that might explain why his icing's still on his back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to Susan Anton. That was a great time I had talking to her. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on our show. And it is now time for a segment from Christopher DeFilippis. Welcome, everyone. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. The Quantum Leap Short Fiction Contest is in full swing, and I've been having a blast reading the entries. The stories couldn't be more different, but a common thread running through them all is massive fan love for Quantum Leap. It's bringing back a lot of memories. It was that same enthusiasm for Quantum Leap that started me on my writing career, and that same fan love that provided the avenue for me to pursue it. 
It all began in my third year of college. I had just finished watching the episode Raped, and I was so affected by it, and so pumped up by the ass-kicking Sam doles out at the end, that I practically ran across campus to the all-night computer lab, and hammered out the first two acts of a Quantum Leap script which I titled Paradox. Once I finished it, I found the address for the QL production offices and FedExed it to Los Angeles, with dreams of getting a call from Don or Deborah. Hell, even Chris Rupenthal would have done saying how much they loved it, and when would I be available to come out and sign my contract. Of course, I was woefully ignorant of the ways of Hollywood, and a few weeks later, my FedEx envelope came back, unopened, stamped, returned to sender. The red letters augmented with accusatory little fingers that seemed to be pointing out my folly and incompetence. All of my hopes and dreams dashed. But fast forward about a year, and what do I see in the bookstore? Quantum Leap, the novel by Ashley McConnell. I snapped it up gleefully. Perhaps Paradox wasn't dead after all. A few more Quantum Leap novels and one college graduation later, I got in touch with the powers that be at Berkeley Publishing and learned their submission process. No way I was going to make the same mistake twice. And that set me firmly on the road that eventually led to the publication of my book, Foreknowledge. Now, there were obstacles and setbacks and eventual triumphs along that road, but those are stories for another day. Suffice it to say that I never would have made it without the fan love I mentioned earlier. Because by the time I began this process, Quantum Leap had already been off the air for a few years. But some diehard leapers in New Jersey were determined to keep Quantum Leap alive. And without their dedication, there never would have been a convention called East Leap. And without East Leap, I never would have been able to introduce myself to, and insinuate myself into the good graces of, Quantum Leap novel editor Ginger Buchanan, who was the tie-in series head honcho. So the fact that I'm talking to you now is directly attributable to superfans like Ruth Calkins and Nancy Henderson, who organized Eastleap and did everything they could to help me out along the way. If you guys are listening, thank you. And that first Eastleap proved prophetic because since, all of the highest highs for my association with Quantum Leap have been thanks to conventions born of fan love. It was at subsequent Eastleaps that I met fellow QL authors like Elizabeth Storm and John Peel, whose interview is featured on this podcast. And it was at the final sleep that I became an author guest for the first time, a dream come true. That dream came true again, thanks to the fan love, sheer determination, and I think a little bit of insanity, that allowed Brian Green to pull off the Leap Back 2009 Quantum Leap Convention, which commemorated the 20th anniversary of Quantum Leap with a three-day celebration in California that featured about 50 guests, including the Big Four. Scott Bakula, Don Belisario, Deborah Pratt, and, via telephone, Dean Stockwell. It was an amazing experience. Deborah actually brought a copy of my book that I had signed and sent to her years before, and she treated me like an old friend. And I got to meet Scott and Don, too. I don't know how you did it, Brian, but I'm glad you did, because, thanks to you, I now have a copy of Foreknowledge signed by Scott, Don, and Deborah, which is, hands down, my most prized possession. And the hits just keep on coming with my new home here on the Quantum Leap podcast. Trust me when I tell you that this is the ultimate labor of fan love. That's the only way to describe the staggering amount of work Albie, Heather, and the rest of the crew do to produce every episode. And I'm trying to do my bit to keep Quantum Leap alive as well. Earlier this year at the Long Island Geek Convention, I hosted a panel called Quantum Leap, Past, Present, and Future. My intent was to remember the show, talk about what Leapers are doing to keep it alive, like this podcast, and where it might be headed for the future. Unfortunately, it wasn't the fan extravaganza I had envisioned. Most attendees had only hazy memories of this show, but they were fond memories nonetheless. So it was an enjoyable hour, but nowhere near as enjoyable as the waves of affection I've felt from our fiction contest entries, 
I can see in them the same feelings that inspired me to dash across campus and write Paradox so many years ago. The same feelings that keep me coming back to Quantum Leap fandom time and time again. When I think of all the life goals I've accomplished and all the wonderful people I've met because of Quantum Leap, our silly obsession over this old TV show doesn't seem so silly at all. So keep those fiction contest stories coming, and let's all keep the leap alive. That's great to hear Christopher's origin story of how he got involved with Quantum Leap and writing and his novel. He's pretty cool. He's a cool guy and a great guy. That's a really awesome story. Like, I think we all kind of wanted to be him in that story. Like, (laughs) especially like having that the ties to the Quantum Leap universe that he does. And it's really where it's such an honor to have him on our team. And he brings so much to our show. And it was just it was cool to hear his journey. I wish we were as involved in Quantum Leap back then and and would have gone to that because that would have been amazing. That's really great to hear a glimpse into Christopher's life and origin story. He's an important part of the team and it's so great to have him. Yes, we're very lucky. And now here's Hayden's interview with author John Peel in a new segment we like to call A Novel Concept. Warning for all new leapers, this interview contains spoilers of The Leap Back and the Quantum Leap novel, Independence. Now, there's a novel concept. John Peel was born in Nottingham, England, the home of Robin Hood in 1954. He was a rather sickly child, so instead of playing games and sports, he read a lot. And reading a lot led to Peel wanting to create his own stories, and so he began to write a lot. Peel was 27 before he became a professional by selling his first story, a comic strip to Marvel Comics. He then managed to sell articles about British television shows to an American magazine, Fantasy Empire. Peel moved to New York in 1981 to get married, and shortly after that became the editor of Fantasy Empire. Peel's first book came as a result of that, and then he started to write fiction. His first original novel was published in 1992, Uptime Downtime about two orphans who discover they have the ability to travel through time, but accidentally erase their own timeline in the process and have to attempt to change history back to the way it was meant to be. Peel has been writing novels ever since. His original works include the Diadem series, a game-like series of novels in which the main characters must travel to and complete challenges on different planets, the Dragon Home series, a sister and brother each have talents, which are considered dangerous in their world. They're on the run from the king's men who want them in their army, and they must seek sanctuary at Dragonhome, in which they discover strange noises in the night and a deadly secret hidden in the castle. The Magical States of America. What if there was another world that existed alongside our own that was almost the same as ours, but twisted in a different direction? A world where they used magic to live their everyday lives instead of science as we do. A world where there's another you, but of the opposite sex. This book imagines just that. 2099. Cloning, computer hackers, and a secret society dedicated to taking over the world. Shockers, a series of horror stories, each with a completely unpredictable ending. And Foul Play, children's games gone wrong and deadly. 
In addition to his extensive original works, Peel has also written numerous television, movie, and video game tie-in stories, being one of the few people who can boast having both Star Trek and Star Wars on his resume, as well as Doctor Who, The Outer Limits, James Bond Jr., The Avengers, Are You Afraid of the Dark, The Secret World of Alex Mack, Eerie Indiana, and Carmen Sandiego. While most authors get their start selling short stories, Peel admits to never having been able to do things quite the same way as others. So it was some time after his novels that Peel managed to sell his first short stories. Among his short stories are The Tales of the Shadow Men, a series which takes characters from French literature or stories set in France and gives them new life. To this day, Peel has still sold more novels than short stories. Currently, John Peel lives on Long Island with his wife and menagerie of dogs. The Peels have been active in helping to rescue abandoned and unwanted miniature pinchers for several years, and as a result, ended up keeping the ones that they couldn't find homes for. Of course, Leapers will know John Peel best as the author of the Quantum Leap novel Independence. It's August 1776. The war for independence has begun, pitting neighbour against neighbour. Samuel Beckett must take his stand with one side or the other. But Samuel Beckett, the real Samuel Beckett, is now over 200 years in the future, and his several times great-grandson has taken his place. Is Samuel Beckett a patriot or a Tory? Or, as some suspect, a double agent? Ziggy doesn't know, and Sam's Swiss cheese brain can't remember the family history. So Sam is left on his own to discover the dangerous truth. The Quantum Leap podcast is lucky enough to be joined by John Peel today. Thank you so much for joining us, John. Hello. <laughs> Just like to know, how did the story for Independence come about? Well, um, it came about because I was absolutely hooked on Quantum Leap. Um, it was one of the shows that I, I never missed. And when I heard they were doing a series of novels based on it, I did something I don't usually do, and that's pretty much begged to write one. Um, I really wanted to have a go at it myself. And the editor, Ginger Buchanan, was kind enough to listen to me and agree that I could submit a few ideas. What I did originally was I, I came up with what I what I try and do when I'm writing a book is to do something that can't really be done on TV for various reasons, which you can do in books. So I came up with what I thought was this absolutely brilliant idea for a novel. It's in which Sam leaps back in time to this cop who originally was killed in action, and it's his job to try and figure out and stop it. Unfortunately, what happens is he actually gets killed. Yikes. And I actually kill Sam, and then everything goes absolutely crazy. Um, there's a congressional investigation. Uh, Quantum Leap is closed down. They're forbidden to use the, um, the, you know, the, the machinery at all. And Donna and Al um, surreptitiously started up again. And Donna has to leap back to try and save Sam. And, of course, she leaps back into the killer. And since this is her first leap, she's really, really groggy and doesn't know what she's doing. And the, the whole book comes to a climax, of course, where she confronts Sam and is about to kill him. And I pitched this idea to, to Ginger. And Ginger gave me this horrified look and said we can't do that <laughs> and i'm like well why you know why not it's great they will never do this on tv and she said they will never do it on tv because sam is the star he's only in two chapters of your book <laughs> you know 
<laughs> so she said, no, no, you have to do a story which has Sam in it. I pitched a second idea where he leaps back into 1963 England because right. pretty much the show had been based in America. And I said to her, why does it have to be America? Why can't he leap anywhere in the world? And I pitched this idea, but she wasn't too happy with it. So I, at that point, I said, well, what would you like to see? You know, what would be your ideal pitch? And she said to me, I'd love it if he just if we had another one where he leaps along his own um, genetic line rather than to his own time into one of his ancestors' times. So that's when I sat down and thought, okay, what am I going to do? And I just at the, at the time I'd just been to um, Concord near Boston, which is where the first battles of the War of Independence were fought. So obviously this was for, foremost in my mind at the time. And I thought, well, that would be good then. And I, because the previous time he'd jumped back, it had been into a, a civil war setting. So I thought a revolutionary war setting might be more fun. And when I pitched this idea, uh, Ginger absolutely loved it. So on my third attempt, I got it right. <laughs> it turned out great. Just out of interest, the stories that you're originally pitching, have you managed to write them down anywhere? Because um, they actually sound really interesting. I'd like to have a chance to read them if possible. Um, yes, I've got, I'm pretty sure I've still got the outline somewhere. I'd have to dig them out. Uh, they'd be in one of my files. But yes, yeah, I write sort of three or four page outlines generally. So there's a, a good three or four page outline for both of the um, the, the novels. Great. You might want to uh, join our <laughs> the Quantum Leap Podcast fanfic competition that we're running at the moment. Uh, you'd probably do a clean sweep. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to ask, writing about the American War of Independence, we were all concerned about having to have your story centred around historical events and people who actually existed. How closely do you feel you stuck to the historical facts and how much liberty do you think you took towards them? I tried to keep reasonably close to the historical facts. Um, a lot of what I put into the book was was quite accurate. Where I live... The Havens Inn is only a few miles from here. So I knew about the Havens connection to the Revolutionary War and about the spies and everything. It's become more popular these days, of course, with that new TV show that came out um, previous season. But at the time, virtually nobody was really writing about it. So I, I was doing something quite different, I thought. And I, I did some other research and looked around and found things that would fit into my plot line. When I started it, I only had a vague idea of what I was going to do. I knew he was going to jump into the Revolutionary War, and I had a few ideas about it, but that was pretty much it. So as I did the research, I kept thinking, oh, I can use this, I can use this, and um, put, put it on one side. In the end, I did actually get one complaint from a reader, a very friendly complaint, who worked in um, one of these reconstruction villages, and she said, the only thing she had actually found inaccurate in the book was that I'd used the wrong stove for when Sam's wife does the cooking. <laughs> the, the stove I'd used actually didn't come into use until about 20 years later. And the funny thing is, when she said that, I remembered that she was absolutely correct. And I should have known it at the time, but I didn't. She's an expert, so if she only found one error. I don't think there were too many, thank goodness. Well, uh, you're just fitting into, you know, something that we Quantum Leap fans really love to do, and that's uh, picking out all the anachronisms. So it's a good oh, thing yeah. you left one there in for us. <laughs> well, there is that one in there. I, I can guarantee that. <laughs> I, I tried my best. 
So how long do you think you actually spent doing your research and uh, where did you find your information? Um, well, my, my wife is a library director, so I went to her library and they have this thing called the Long Island Room, which is directly um, a, a collection of books that are, have direct bearing on the history of Long Island. So I went to the War of Independence section and started pulling pamphlets and articles and looking at them saying, no, that's too far away or, okay, this is possible. And then I, I went through them you know, one by one that way. It's where I found out the um, the stories about Huntington uh, that I used in the book. Great. Obviously, the story of independence was very, very different to what you originally pitched, and you had to make a great deal of edits in the process to be able to mm -hmm. make a sale. But what sort of changes uh, brought on in the story as it evolved through the writing process, and were you happy with the finished product? I was extremely happy with how it turned out. There were some changes um, when I started doing the book, I started writing it. I'd sent in, um, I'd never worked with Ginger before. And it's always kind of iffy when you're working with a new editor. You never quite know how you're going to get along. So, and obviously from her point of view, when you're working with a new writer you haven't used before, you're never quite sure if they're matching what you're thinking. So she had me send in a few chapters and I did that. I mean, it's not a problem. And she called me up and she said, you haven't got a verbena in it. And I said, who's Verbena? <laughs> and uh, she said, well, she's, she's the, the psychologist. And I said, I honestly don't remember her. And she said, well, she was mentioned <laughs> in like one episode, but we're using as a, as a regular character. So we'd like you to add her in. And I was like, yeah, okay. Um, I didn't know that. <laughs> so um, I, I had to actually go back and add Verbena into the story in certain places. The other thing was that the, one of my favorite parts of the original Quantum Leap, um, the TV show, was, I mean, I absolutely adored the story where Sam leapt back into himself and discovered he was married. So I was very, very keen on using Donna in, in a large role. And apparently Ginger wasn't so keen on that because she felt that the fans didn't really want Donna around because it kind of detracted from Sam. But I always thought that the, you know, the, the kind of lost love story was really, really powerful. So I pulled this forward and she, she let me get away with it in the end. <laughs> there definitely seems to be a theme throughout uh, independence of soulmates and people who gravitate towards each other, no matter how time or space separates them. Was this intentional on your part or do you think it was just a really nice side effect? Oh, no, no, that was intentional on my part. I liked the idea that Sam was falling in love with his own ancestor. I mean, aside from the fact that it it's raises all kinds of creepy questions um, <laughs> and obviously, you know, get, get Sam all worked up about it. I mean, you know, falling in love with your own great, great, whatever grandmother is a little weird to say the least. Um, I, I, I like that kind of aspect of it, but I, I just felt it, it was kind of, it was just too much fun not to do really. And, I like that kind of star-crossed lovers theme. It's it's something I've always enjoyed, and that was my really only chance to actually play with it. Yeah, and uh, it was hilarious seeing Al, you know, give his usual oh, "Go for it, Sam," and Sam being exactly yes. creeped out with his thoughts. And yeah, I mean, Al is right about uh, it wouldn't be incestuous with that much separating, but uh, yeah, everyone can understand how creepy and creeped out Sam would be. Uh, Sam would be, yes.
Yes. Uh, in, in fact, Ginger thought I was making um, Al a little bit too sexist, uh, which is why I put the last little piece in the book where he explains to Donna that he's being sexist, not because it's his nature, which it is, of course, but because he was trying to distract Sam. So she allowed me to get away with that one. <laughs> yeah, it's always nice having that little bit of extra for Al just to give his character a little bit more flavour. Obviously, since this story is set outside Sam's lifetime, as you said, he has to leap into one of his ancestors whose DNA is similar enough so that it's a match. And it appears that his host, Samuel, is very much like Sam and that mm-hmm. Samuel's wife, Hannah, is very much like Donna, even in appearance. So when you were writing the story, did you actually picture Samuel and Hannah as the past lives of Sam and Donna? Um, no, not really. It's just that I'd read this piece where they were talking about how people are attracted to certain kinds of people. And I just thought it would be kind of interesting to have two people who look a little alike being attracted to two other people who look a little alike. It, it was just my way of picking up a little bit of scientific background, I guess. I, I do this sometimes. I'll, I'll read an article and think, oh, that's an interesting thing. I'll have to keep that in mind for one of my stories. And that one had just occurred to me, and it just seemed like it was kind of appropriate that, you know, if Sam looked like Samuel, maybe they'd be attracted to the almost exactly the same kind of woman. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, it sort, of, it sort of made sense when I was writing it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it definitely makes sense. Uh, now, there's a great deal of violence depicted in independence for obvious reasons, being, you know, in the Revolutionary War. What sort of a mindset do you have to get into to be able to write a violent scene, and does it affect you at all? Um, everything I write affects me in one way or another. Sometimes I get caught up in what I'm doing and the the mindset doesn't go away when I stop writing. Sometimes when I'm having a discussion, if I'm talking to someone after I've written a chapter or something, I will still be talking in the way that my characters have been talking. Because once you get into it, it takes you a little while to get out again. With the violence, I'm not very keen on violence myself, but when you're dealing with a war story, you have no options. You you know, you have to have violence. And my feeling is that if you're writing a war story, you should show it as being pretty unappealing, really. Uh, that, that's the way I try to approach it. Yeah, definitely. Just moving on a little bit from Quantum Leap, what are some books that you absolutely loved that may have inspired you to become a writer? That one actually is very easy. Uh, when I was, wow, I must have been 10 years old or 11 years old, I grew up on Doctor Who and Back in in the early 60s, mid-60s, it was must have been, David Whittaker novelized the very first Daleks story as Doctor Who in an exciting adventure with the Daleks. And, I mean, I must have read that 20 or 30 times, even as a kid. And it, it just flowed into me. It was just so beautifully written. And I just absolutely adored it. And that made me want to do the same kind of thing. It, that that was probably the book mostly responsible for my one ride. Um, and, I mean, even now, I still love it. His his writing style is beautiful, and his, you know, his sense of story is great. So uh, that's the number one book I know that really influenced me. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I've read a lot of others as well. I was a tremendous reader as a kid. I'm still reading an awful lot even these days because – I, I enjoy the imagination. I enjoy 
prose and how people can tell stories and things. So I read an awful lot. I read everything. I mean, I, I didn't really care whether it was good or bad. I would just read it just to see, because I, I always felt that if someone had managed to get into print, there must be something in it that's worth reading. <laughs> Not so sure these days, but back back then I was quite convinced of it. <laughs> well, you can't judge a book by its cover, can you? Well, a lot of people do that. That's the trouble. <laughs> it's funny you mention that, actually. We have one listener who I've been telling the listeners that we were going to be talking to you, and uh, she said to me, I'm a bit iffy about reading Independence because the cover looks very gory. <laughs> and I told her, no, you have to read it. It's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I kind of like the cover. It's, it's rather nice. Very, very good picture of Sam. Oh, it is. I, yeah. I, I do enjoy the cover. Uh, I've, I've been very fortunate. Almost all of my book covers I've loved, and um, that was certainly a good one. So what's it like writing for an established franchise like Doctor Who or Quantum Leap, as opposed to starting a new universe from scratch? Well, you've got a lot of background already done for you. Uh, when you're creating your own universes or your own stories set in even our universe, you have to do a lot of background work, just setting up the the set, you know, the setting and the characters and everything. Whereas when you're doing it based on a TV show or a movie, that's all been done for you. So what you then have to do is just say, well, taking these characters, what would be an interesting thing to do with them? So I enjoy doing both things. I enjoy writing my own original stories, but then again. I enjoy playing in other people's universes. So if, if it's a show I like, especially, you know, um, obviously I'm, I'm very keen to write them. And it, it's great fun for me. Um, it's, it's a lot easier because you, you, you can picture things much quicker. There's less creation involved in that sense. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Uh, is it easier to be able to write for an established franchise because you don't have to do all that background work? Well, then there's the problem that, of course, that you have to stay within the framework so that you, you, you have constraints that you don't have with your own characters. I mean, obviously, if you're writing, uh, well, as I say, I tried to, I was about to say you can't kill off the main characters, but that's exactly what I wanted to do uh, in my first time around <laughs> on Quantum Leap. Uh, but I mean, you, you know, obviously, you can't make major changes. By the end of the book, your characters can't really change that much from the beginning of the book because there's going to be another 50 or 60 people writing stories on the same in the same universe, and they're not going to be necessarily reading what you've done. And obviously, you, you can't marry off characters or things like that, you know, higgledy-piggledy. You, you've got to follow the, the, the guidelines. So it's kind of like you, you, you have to follow a map, and you, you've got a certain amount of leeway. You can go one direction or another, but you've got to basically end up in the same place. That's one of the beautiful things about Quantum Leap, isn't it? The fact that uh, you can pretty much watch them in any order you like and there's not much of an effect on the overall arcing story. How different is it writing about a video game? Ah, well, <laughs> that, that was kind of weird. I am absolutely awful at video games. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. So it's mostly, from my point of view, when I was doing Common San Diego, I played a few games just to get the feel of it and what the characters were like, and then I simply put it on one side and just wrote a story, and, you know, that was that. <laughs> Other than that, no, uh, video games I, I, I sort of steer clear of. <laughs> Are there any franchises that you've wanted to write for but haven't had the chance? Oh, yes, lots. Um, 
one of the ones that I really wanted to do was Alien Nation. I mean, I adored that series. Very, very clever show. And I, um, I actually approached them about doing a novel. And what happened was that I was actually set to do one. They had found when the show had originally been broadcast, this was between the show being broadcast and the reunion movies, um, when the show had originally been broadcast, there were a whole bunch of scripts that had never been filmed. So they actually sent me an unscreened film um, script and said, would you like to novelize this? And it was a very clever script. So I said, yes, sure, I'd love to. And we were literally like a day away from signing the contracts and the series was canceled. So the books went by the way. So I was very close to writing an Alien Nation novel, which would have been a lot of fun. I, I was looking forward to that one. Um, there, there's several other franchises I, I would have adored to have played with. And um, who knows, maybe one of these days I, I'll get a chance to, to do it. But, um, I mean, they're bringing back a lot of the ones that I've always enjoyed, like Man From Uncle or Thunderbirds. So I might just get a chance one of these days. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm sure we'd all uh, really love to hear it. Which of your works is still in print, and uh, where can they be purchased? Pretty much most of my um, my fantasies are still in print. I believe Amazon carries quite a number of them still, thank goodness. And um, I've self-published a couple that um, were sequels to other material that um, the original publisher decided they didn't want to do a sequel to for one reason or another. So a couple of them are actually myself, my own publications. And I've got a Lethbridge Stewart novel coming out next year, though I'm not exactly sure quite when yet. <laughs> yeah, that's a Doctor Who spin-off, isn't it? Yes, yes. It's a spin-off from the Doctor Who. Someone discovered that the Brigadier character was actually not copyrighted by the BBC, but by the original author, the person who had written it originally, and they licensed it from him. So that was kind of interesting. <laughs> Are you allowed to give us a little tidbit of uh, what we can expect in that book? Oh, sure. What it is is that the character of the Lethbridge Stewart was created for the story The Web of Fear and then reappeared later in The Invasion. So these books of Lethbridge Stewart's adventures are set between those two stories, uh, in between him, his first appearance and his second appearance which spanned about two years. So they've got plenty of room for stories, I think. And what it is is that he's, this is before the days that he's working with UNIT, he's working with the British Army. So I ended up writing an alien invasion story with the very strange title, The Grandfather Infestation, which actually makes sense when you read the story, but I came up with the, the title simply to make people go, what? Um, which I do occasionally, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's an it's an alien invasion. I've done alien invasions before, and the the one thing I don't like is just that a lot of the aliens are just nasty, unpleasant characters that have decided you know they're going to invade the Earth. I wanted something a little bit different, and these aliens really don't care one way or the other about the human race. They just want the property, which is kind of. Um, I, I, I thought it was a little different, at least. <laughs> really looking forward to it. You're also working on the third Dragon Home book, is that correct? That's right, yes. In fact, I, I was working on it a little earlier today. It's one of those things where I, I was working with an editor who was absolutely marvellous and who understood me really, really well. And he called me up one day in the middle of this, the summer and said to me, 
hi, John, it's Craig Walker. Would you like to write a book for me? And I mean, they're magic words for any author, of course, you know, when, it, when they actually come to you and ask you to write a book. It's amazing because they've already convinced themselves they want you, which is a good start. So you don't have to work quite so hard pitching stories. And I said, yes, I'd love to write you a book. And he said, how about Jane Eyre with dragons? It was just one of those things, you know, sometimes something just catches your imagination and you just go, yeah, I can do that. So I said to him, yeah, sure. And I literally got off the phone with him. This was like four o'clock in the afternoon. And I sat there the rest of the evening thinking, Jane Eyre with dragons. And I started typing an idea. And by the literally by the following morning, I had a complete outline. And I called him up and said, I'm faxing you an outline. This is in the days before um, widespread computer use. Um, I'm faxing you an outline, and I faxed him the outline, and he bought it the same day. Literally a day after he'd asked me to write the book, he bought it. Then, of course, I had to sit there and write it. Yeah, well, that's and great turned, feedback, though. <laughs> yeah. What was funny was because I was so inspired from the beginning by just simply that one-line description that I, I actually wrote it very, very quickly. And I, I really – it was like white heat, you know, the, the way you work – I'm one of those writers when I'm writing, I just really can't wait to get it, you know, get up in the morning and start work again. And that book, more than probably any other I've written, I was really, really excited by myself. And I think if you're excited by a story yourself, this comes through in the writing. Uh, it helps the, you know, it helps the reader. And it's proven to be a very, very popular book. I'm, I'm getting constantly getting um, comments from people saying, I read this when I was in fifth grade. Now I'm reading it to my children, which is kind of flattering and, ins well, not exactly insulting, but you know, it makes you think, oh, my goodness, it must be <laughs> I must be a lot older than they thought kind of thing if they're reading it to their kids. <laughs> but but it, it's wonderful that they, they have such good memories of the book. And I had so many people asking me for a sequel that I, f I finally gave in and did it. But... It turned out that my the, the, the editor, uh, Craig Walker, who had commissioned the first book, had died, sadly, and nobody else at his publishing firm wanted to take on a sequel. So I thought, right, I'll, I'll publish it myself, which I did. And as soon as I did that, people then read it and then kept emailing me and everything and saying, when are you doing the next one? <laughs> so I, I got kind of forced into doing a third one without really having thought about what the, what the story would be. Yeah, what have you gotten yourself into? <laughs> yes, quite. And <laughs> it's astonishing because people love the character, um, the main character, Malayne, who has the ability to communicate with animals. And she talks with animals and everything. And it, she's an interesting character because she's very naive. She's been brought up in almost isolation. So she really doesn't know how to communicate to people exactly. And she just tells the truth constantly, which usually gets her into serious trouble, of course. And um, her, her responses are just very instinctive. So she's an interesting character, and people just seem to really relate to her, which is lovely. I love characters like that. It sounds a, a lot like Luna Lovegood from Harry Potter, one of those people yes. that just genuinely doesn't care what anyone else thinks and, you know, Right. all the time. and Yeah, it was kind of funny watching uh, Luna because she is a little like Melaine, yes. Um, thankfully, I, I created Melaine a few years before Harry Potter, so I'm fairly safe there. 
<laughs> uh, well, may- maybe you can get some royalties from J.K. Rowling. That would be lovely. <laughs> uh, this is just a writing in general sort of question. I've noticed that a lot of writers sometimes tend to write under a pseudonym, and I've noticed you've done that with a few works. Um, I'm just yeah. wondering what sort of reasons are there behind wanting to write under a pseudonym just because it, it just seems like I'd want to get the credit for my work. I don't know why I'd put it under a different name. So, Yep. Well, no, my, my feeling is exactly. I never wrote under a pseudonym myself willingly. I mean, it was never me saying, oh, I want this to go out as, under a pseudonym. I never did that. Um, what, what happened was that I, I wrote a couple of books in a continuing series. And what would happen there is that the editors had created a kind of group name because they would have various writers writing these stories. And the problem is they would then obviously, if they were under the original writer's names, they would all get lumped. Uh, they wouldn't be put together on the shelf. They would all be separate. And it would be hard to find you know, where the series was when you'd have to keep going from different writer to different writer. So they create a, a, a kind of group pseudonym that everybody writes under, which is what happened when I did um, books as Nicholas Adams. The other time I really wrote under a pseudonym was when I did the James Bond Jr. books. And in that case, it was because the James Bond production company, who owned the copyrights, didn't want my name on the books because they didn't want me to be credited as a James Bond writer. So they insisted on putting on a pseudonym. Um, but since I did all six books, it was, it was a pseudonym that was actually me. And somebody there must have had a sense of humor. I don't know who it was because I certainly never talked to them. Um, but instead of John Peel, they, they created the pseudonym John Vincent. And I think it's from that How to Win Friends and Influence People uh, book by a guy called John Vincent Peel. So I, I think they were being a bit funny there. If I was a, an editor, then I'd be trying to sneak little funny bits in as well, wherever I can. <laughs> I used to do that a lot with my books. I have a terrible sense of humor, and I, I, I can't write seriously for too long. I have to put jokes into things because that's the way I am. And um, uh, I, I did that with the James Bond Jr. books. There's a lot of jokes in those. <laughs> Just moving back to Quantum Leap a little bit, what is your favorite part of Quantum Leap? or your favorite aspect of Quantum Leap? Well, I, I think the, the, the thing that really grabbed me, the, the episode that really, really made me love the show was the episode, I've forgotten the name of it now, um, the episode where Sam jumps back into the Black Servant. Uh, the Colour of Truth, I think that one. Colour of Truth, yeah. yes. And, I mean, to me, that was an astonishing episode. It was something you had never seen really on TV before. And the, the way they were approaching the color problem in a very weird way, because he was white, of course, but everybody saw him as black. And it was just such a beautiful script. And I mean, let's face it. He's such a great actor that that role that he played was just had so much dignity in it. And I, it just absolutely I, I, I mean, I was blown away by that one. And, I mean, after that, as far as I was concerned, there was no way I was missing the show. Before that episode, I'd always enjoyed it. But that was the one episode that kind of really made me realize just what they could do with the show when they had a mind to. 
and it, it was just wonderful. Yeah, I have a very similar experience, actually. Uh, the Color of Truth is the first episode that I actually saw, and ah. yeah, just watching that, I was hooked. Yep. There was no way I was missing it either, so <laughs> I guess yeah. what minds think alike. Yeah, it, it, it's just such a brilliant episode, and um, it, it was so well written, so well acted, so well filmed. It was just everything came together. You know, sometimes this happens on a show where everything just comes together absolutely perfectly, and you, you, you're just watching it going, yes, brilliant. And, and that was my experience with that episode. It's great that through Quantum Leap, they're able to tell a story about things that have happened in the past, real sensitive and huge issues, but from the point of view of someone who's living in present day. So we can see how absurd and how unjust everything is, and we're seeing it through the same point of view as ourselves through this character that's from the present. So, Right. Yeah, I, I do that a lot myself, taking characters from the present day and putting them in past situations where you can comment on them, whereas, of course, the characters who are living in the past see nothing wrong with what they're doing. A character from the present day looking at the situation can say, well, that's not right. That's not the way people should behave. And that's what Quantum Leap managed to do a lot, I think. Yeah, they really did a great job of that. This is a question from one of our listeners, Leslie. Reviews of the Quantum Leap novels tend to range all over the spectrum. One's down the very, very <laughs> low end saying this is, you know, an awful book. The writer doesn't understand the two main characters, all the way up to glowing reviews saying it's the most true to book series I've ever read. Oh, by the way, yours is definitely up there on the high end. Uh, <laughs> but did you ever feel any pressure about writing what has become one of the most beloved series on the planet? No, actually, I, I, I never felt any pressure whatsoever. I just felt tremendously glad that I was doing it because, I, as I say, I love the show and I really, really, really wanted to play with those characters. It, it's only after you're done that you start thinking, oh, I wonder how other people are going to see this. Um, because you, you can never know. This is why the reviews are always up and down. One person can love it, one person can hate it, because it depends on, on the viewer or, in this case, obviously the reader, as to how they respond to what you're writing. And, you know, sometimes you, you hit the right buttons and everybody goes, oh, love it. And then other times you, you miss somehow and then people start picking holes in it. So, you know, you, you really can't worry about that while you're writing it. That tends to be something that comes to you afterwards. Oh, how are they going to take this? I hadn't even thought about it kind of thing. Yeah, when you can't do anything about it. Right, yes. Well, um, I, I, I can give you an example of, of something that I did, which I wasn't sure how anybody would take, and then nobody even got it, so it wasn't a question. Um, I, I did a Star Trek novel, a Star Trek Next Generation novel, and um, this was about the time that um, Jonathan Frakes was hosting the Alien Autopsy video. So I wrote an Alien Autopsy video into my book, and had Jonathan Frakes actually present at it in the story. And because I thought it would be funny. And it wasn't until after I'd written it and sent it in that I suddenly thought, well, you know, people got a little annoyed with him for doing that. Maybe they'll get annoyed with my book having put the, you know, something similar in. And I don't think anybody even noticed it. It was so weird because I was expecting to get a, a, a lashback from people saying, how could you do that? And I, I didn't get a single comment. Nobody. It was so weird. 
So yeah, I think you'd probably find that people are just interested to see what what people think up. So uh, you you right. can't really criticize someone for letting their imagination run wild. <laughs> Do you know if Independence is going to end up being released in an ebook form at all? And have any of your other works been released as ebooks? I have no idea. The writer's usually the last person who gets told these kind of things, I'm afraid. A couple of my Star Trek books have been released in ebook form, I know that. And the ones that I've self published, I've done as ebooks as well. Uh, I have to admit, I bought a Kindle a couple of years ago, and um, I'm absolutely hooked with it. Uh, aside from anything else, it means my bookshelves don't get quite so weighed down these days. So I'm I'm very fond of um, having things in ebook form, and it's a great way of of doing a back uh, catalogue. Which I mean, obviously, publishers don't like to keep every book they've ever printed in uh, in print because you know, it's going to take a lot of space up. Whereas in in ebook form, you can keep them um, pretty much in print forever. There's no problem. So I, I I think it would be lovely. I'd I'd love to see the quantum leaps come out in ebook form. Have any of them been done? Not to my knowledge, and we get a lot of yeah. questions if we know if it's going to happen or if or why hasn't it been done. Obviously, we're not affiliated with them; we've got no idea. Right. So, but we we also hope that they do get released in ebook form at some point too, because people have exactly the same mindset. They want to be able to have it with them all the time and not have it take up too much space. And right, well, uh, certainly, if anybody actually approached me about it, I, I'd be very happy to say yes, 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 do it because. I'm an author and I have an ego and I love the idea of my books coming back in print, <laughs> especially ones that I've enjoyed writing so much. Speaking of writing for Quantum Leap, do you have any other Quantum Leap stories in your head that uh, you're just dying to put down on paper? Where would you have Sam leaping to next? Um, I've actually not thought about it. As I say, I did the one book and then I moved on. I forget what I did after that, but I, I, I went on to something else and then I really hadn't thought about doing any more. I, I, it's, it's kind of odd because I'd enjoyed it so much. And usually when I enjoy something, I like to go back and do another. But for some reason, I never quite got around to going back to Quantum Leap. Um, I, I think I was distracted. I think this was about the time when I was creating my own fantasy series. And I, I focused so much on that that I really didn't think back again. <laughs> but... Um, there's a lot of stuff. As I say, I always wanted Sam to leap out of um, America because, you know, it seems so unrealistic that every single time he jumped, he should jump somewhere in America. Only a few times I can think of offhand. So, right. Yeah. And if you think about how big the world is and the small percentage that uh, America is, then you'd be probably be expecting him to be leaping outside quite a lot more. Same with women as well, because women are more than 50% of the population, and uh, he only ever leaps into a woman a few times as well. So, Right. You know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of ground to explore there, especially if you want to tell um, an interesting story. I mean, you've got – we had the leap into Vietnam, for example, which was um, obviously overseas. But um, other than that, there really wasn't a lot, and there's just so much you can explore. And w with the point of view and of, of Sam and everything, it, it will be interesting, I'm sure. Well, hopefully uh, all the writers and perspective writers around realise how rich this show is with possibilities and get writing and building up more interest and hopefully we'll get back the show and back the novel series in some way, shape or form. Yeah, it would be great.
Well, thank you for joining us, John. Uh, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you very much for, um, for an interesting conversation. It's been great fun. It was so cool hearing John Peel talk about all the different books he wrote. I like his Star Trek books. He writes Doctor Who books. He's just cool in general. And it's very cool that uh, Hayden got to do that. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for, we have feedback. Feedback, feedback, feedback. And these emails will be read by Heather because Juan just had a baby. Congratulate. Well, Juan didn't have a baby. Well. His wife had a baby, though. Congratulations to Juan and Alicia on the birth of their baby girl. Felicity Marie. Yay! Congratulations! I was hoping she was named after Felicity the TV show. She was named after Felicity from Green Arrow, so now I have to watch Green Arrow. Oh, shucks. That's still like a geeky name, though. It's still uh, in the nerd verse. It's a good TV name. You, you need a good TV name. If not a good Star Trek name, a good TV name. Yeah. This email's from Barbara Noel, and it's about Leap of Faith. Hi, Albie and Heather. The thing at the beginning when we first see Tony and his brother, I agree with you, Albie, about the link to the necklace should have been broken. If that was me, I would not have been able to wear it after breaking it away from where it was. In this case, hanging from the mirror inside the car. It just doesn't make any sense. The clasp should have been broken. I also love and enjoy the Kiss with History segment. And in this particular episode, it had Sylvester Stallone. I love that surprise look on Sam's face when he saw the name on the locker door. I also noticed the name P. Floyd on the other locker door and wondered if it belonged to someone named Pink Floyd. But I did not make the connection that you did about boxing in the church. Kudos to you, Heather. That's very clever. And about Al not enjoying being inside a church. I must have forgotten how back in season one, with Kid Cody, Al was with Sam down in the church basement. Yet with this episode, he showed a kind of discomfort being in church. I guess it's just an inconsistency with the writers. As you said, Albie, too many cooks um, or writers in the kitchen. But how I love hearing more about the background stories of our heroes, Al, with his sister Trudy and his dad. Same thing with the background stories about Sam. I just love that emotional link with Al and the Calavici family. Heather, regarding the whole thing about Sam bending over, yet he still got shot. I agree with you and Albie about that physical effect of what happened to Sam. It makes my heart skip quite a few beats when I see him fall to the ground. I was so afraid for Sam that he would die and all the rest of the DVDs are blank. Giggles. It doesn't make sense that Sam ducked, but still got shot. So badly injured. But I realized the purpose of the scene was to restore Al's faith in God. The same as back in season two, referencing blind faith. So the mother would believe that the blind pianist is blind, not faking it, thusly allowing her daughter to go with him. I didn't like that this is one of the episodes that in the bar scene with the fights, the DVD plays a different song on the jukebox and the telly plays another song. Perhaps one day, when the Quantum Leap series goes to Blu-ray, it might choose to be the correct song. But I'm not holding my breath, lol. Perhaps this is why you don't find it on Netflix. Perhaps because of the jukebox song difference, do you think? I agree with Albie that funny bit with the old couple and the guy, his name was Albert. I found that to be hysterically funny. Every time I see it, I guess it's the comic relief. Especially just after something so scary as Sam, as Father Frank Pistano, getting shot and almost dying. Not meaning to make light of the situation, it just makes me stop crying in fear of Sam's life. And lastly, I want to thank you for sharing that wonderful interview with the guy who played Father Frank Pistano. I found him to be very entertaining and funny. 
Looking forward to the next episode, the photographer episode. Thanks again. Sincerely and respectfully yours, Barbara Noel. Thank you, Barbara. She has a lot of good points. Yeah. I like that the fact that uh, people are picking up on the rest of the discs are blank thing. Yeah, that's been our running gag for a while. With us. Yeah. I think the main reason that the show isn't on Netflix is the music. I still don't understand that. Money. Yeah, I guess that's what it all comes down to. People want mountains of money. I want mountains of money. In the UK, they're like, nope, you get what you get. In the US, it's like, I want infinity money or you can't use it. And companies are like, well, we don't have infinity money. And people are like, well, then you can't use it. I still don't understand how it works over there and over here. Uh, It's non-negotiable. Is it a one-time fee? I think the rates are standardized, so people can't just demand whatever they want for it. Right. I'm like, here we can't even like use music on a home video on YouTube. According to my Australian friend, you can use anything you want anytime. You just got to say who it's by. So that must be nice. Here they tried to make money off of our daughter's dance class because of a song that she danced to. They tried to monetize our video. The, the artist wanted money for the video because she was in a dance class. Hmm. Because of the quiet song playing in the background of my daughter's dance class. I was like, remove that song. I pressed that button. So Yeah, I don't want your song in my video then. <laughs> Not at all. Never. Replace it with a bicycle built for two, please. <laughs> that would be pretty funny. There are many ways to leave feedback for the Quantum Leap podcast. You can hit us up on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantum leap podcast. We are on Twitter at Quantum Leap Pod. Our Instagram is always blowing up at Quantum Leap Podcast. So remember to tag yourself and all your Quantum Leap related images with us. And so we can see them and everybody else can see them. Exactly. You can send MP3s and emails to Quantum Leap Podcast at gmail.com. And you can call us at 707-847-6682. And now I think it's time for Hayden's segment. This is a warning for all new leapers. Time travel could be dangerous to your health. Also, this segment contains spoilers of the Quantum Leap episodes, Leap Between the States, The Leap Back, Starlight Starbright, Deliver Us from Evil and Future Boy, as well as the Quantum Leap novel Foreknowledge and the films Somewhere in Time and Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Hey, leapers, you've gone one strobe over the line, and now you're in Quantum Deep. I'm a mathematician. I like mathematics because it's the only science which has a sense of exactness and a means to prove the truth of statements without a shadow of a doubt. I recently came across a statement along the lines of all time travel theories result in paradoxes. A paradox is a contradiction, something that cannot logically be possible. Therefore, by reducio ad absurdium, time travel is impossible. The statement caught my eye because of the use of the term reducio ad absurdium. In mathematics, reducio ad absurdium is a method of proof that works by making a statement and going through a series of logical steps until you reach a contradiction, something that cannot possibly be true. And as long as the logical steps are all valid, that means that the only way that you could get to this contradiction is if the original statement must have been false. 
And so its opposite has to be true. A famous example is the proof that there are infinitely many prime numbers. A prime number is a positive whole number that can only be evenly divided by one and itself. So if we were to make the statement, there are a finite number of prime numbers, then that means there has to exist some largest prime number. If you created a number by multiplying all the primes up to this largest prime, then obviously this number you create will be able to be divided by every single prime number, as every single prime number was used to create it. But if you were to add one to this new number, though, then if you were to try to divide this new number by any of the primes, then you would have a remainder of one. So that means we found another number which is bigger than the so-called biggest prime, which can only be evenly divided by one and itself. So that means either there must be a larger prime number than this so-called largest prime that divides it, or this new number itself must be a prime. This is a contradiction. How could you possibly have a largest prime number and then find a larger one? Since every logical step was valid, that means that the false step had to be the original statement, that there are a finite number of prime numbers. And so the opposite statement, there are infinitely many prime numbers, must be true. So the statement that I saw on Facebook, the time travel example that I mentioned at the beginning, the person started with the statement, time travel is possible, and then used the so-called laws of time travel to come to contradictions, in other words, paradoxes, and assumed that the logic used to reach the statement was sound and therefore came to the conclusion that time travel is possible is a false statement, and so time travel being impossible has to be the true one. However, I have several issues with this statement and proof of the impossibility of time travel, though, which I felt were worth discussing. Actually, I also have issues with the word paradoxes. Surely the plural of paradox would be paradigm, wouldn't it? Oh, well. Anyway, being time travel related, it obviously made me think of my favorite show and made me wonder, do any paradigm come up in Quantum Leap? And how well does Quantum Leap do at avoiding or otherwise rectifying them? Of course, this meant learning a bit more about time, theories of time travel, and things that could happen, including paradigm. The first issue that I have with the so-called proof given above is that time travel actually does exist in a process known as time dilation. It's well known that time is relative, and if an object travels at a very fast speed, clocks actually slow down. This has been proven when the atomic clock was sent into orbit, and it returned still in perfect working order, but at an earlier time to the control atomic clock that had remained on Earth, which had been synchronized to the one that went in orbit before it went into orbit. So this means that if it was possible for a person to travel at a speed close to the speed of light, when they returned to Earth, they would actually be younger than what they would have been if they had stayed on Earth. So one could easily consider this as traveling into the future. As far as logic goes, a simple counterexample is enough to disprove a general statement. And so time dilation would be enough to disprove the statement that time travel is impossible. But this is really semantic. When most people talk about time travel, they aren't referring to time dilation. They're referring to a person's, or possibly an object's, personal timeline, deviating and looping back and forth over the existential timeline. There is still a problem with the so-called proof, though. And that is that using reducio ad absurdium requires that if you have gotten to a contradiction, every logical step in the proof has to be valid 
in order to get to the point where you can say that the original statement was actually false. But in real life, there are not any established rules of time travel. So how could one make a logical statement about something that nobody knows about? Until someone actually shows true and repeatable steps which will result in the same outcome, it's impossible to make a general statement such as time travel is impossible. But of course, one could speculate as much as possible. Time travel in fiction simply arose from someone letting their imagination run wild and then thinking about what could happen if such a thing was possible. So let's speculate about possible temporal paradise that people have come up with while letting their minds wander and wondering what if and whether or not Quantum Leap has had to address them. Easily the most famous paradox is the so-called grandfather paradox. The idea is that if you went back in time and something you did resulted in your grandfather's or any other direct descendant's death, this would prevent you from being able to be conceived. But if you don't exist, then you could never have travelled back in time, and thus your grandfather or other descendant won't have died, and that means you do exist. There is only one time when Sam comes close to preventing his own existence. It's when he takes over the life of his own great-grandfather, appropriate for the grandfather paradox. This is one of the few times that Sam leaps outside his own lifetime and is made possible because his own DNA matches that of his great-grandfather. It's 1862, right in the middle of the Civil War, and as a Yankee captain who is wounded in battle in the Deep South, Sam takes refuge at the home of his great-grandmother, who takes pity on him. Sam is there to ensure that black slaves who are trying to escape to the north to freedom manage to navigate the Underground Railroad without being caught. Unfortunately, since this is the first time that Sam's great-grandmother has met his great-grandfather, Sam also has to try to ensure that she becomes fond enough of him to ensure that a relationship will blossom when Sam leaves and his great-grandfather comes back. If they don't get together, then Sam cannot be conceived. Fortunately, Sam's charming enough to be able to keep his great-grandmother interested, so the possible disastrous effects of the grandfather paradox don't rear their ugly head. However, in the Quantum Leap novel Foreknowledge, written by the Quantum Leap podcast's own Christopher DePhilippus, the grandfather paradox is in full effect. It's 1976, and Sam leaves out of a woman named Anne-Marie Renneray, but Anne-Marie is not pleased with her changed life. She's left with a plea bargain jail sentence that she doesn't remember agreeing to and a hazy memory of the name of the man she thinks is responsible for her imprisonment. In 1988, Anne-Marie's sentence is over and now she is dedicated to the single obsessive purpose that got her 12 years in prison. Death to Sam Beckett. Ziggy is not functioning properly as she's not able to get past the fact that there's a 50-50 chance that she doesn't exist and Al and the rest of the project frantically struggle to stop a mad woman before she stops Sam Beckett forever. Small changes to the timeline occur throughout, such as Diane McBride no longer being on the committee and Tom Beckett no longer being alive. More small changes happen as it appears more likely that the timeline in which the project exists will no longer be. The small changes in the timeline make for a nice walk down memory lane, remembering the things that went wrong which Sam once put right and are done in a very subtle and very clever manner. So much so that occasionally something reads perfectly, then will hit you that something doesn't seem right, needing some afterthought to realise what is actually happening. However, and I know Chris will debate me on this, I think that if there was something that was putting Sam's existence in danger, I don't think that there would be a massive effect on the project as there was in this story. 
I subscribe to the theory that nothing in the future will change until something happens in the past to change it. While there was still the chance for Sam to survive, then the project and everyone in it would still exist as they normally had, as the timeline would not change until Sam is actually murdered. However, perhaps it is the paradox in play which is actually causing the small irregularities. By murdering Sam, it is causing the loop of the project not being created, thereby ensuring Anne-Marie is not incarcerated, which means she's not mad at Sam and so he isn't murdered. So Project Quantum Leap does go ahead. So Sam does go back in time. Anne-Marie is incarcerated, so she gets mad and gets even. Did I mention time travel's not logical? Similar to the grandfather paradox is the so-called let's kill Hitler paradox. Let's say you wanted to prevent World War II. It would be a very noble thought indeed, definitely something Sam would want to do if given the chance. Unlikely though, considering it happened outside his lifetime. So you build a time machine and decide to go to a time before Adolf Hitler came to power in Nazi Germany. You succeed, World War II never happens, and you save millions of people's lives. But hang on, if none of that ever happened, then you have no reason to want to go back in time. So you don't build the time machine, you never go back in time to kill Hitler, and so he takes power in Germany and World War II happens. So you build the time machine. The main difference between the two paradigm is that the grandfather paradox focuses on whether the time traveller exists, while the killing Hitler paradox focuses on whether the means of time travel exists. In Quantum Leap, there are a couple of instances where the killing Hitler paradox is alluded to and even reacted to. The first is in MIA. Sam has the option to try to help Al to save his marriage to Beth. But since Al was so pivotal in the creation of Project Quantum Leap, there's a chance that by saving his marriage, he might never meet Sam, and thus Project Quantum Leap might not end up existing. If it doesn't exist, Sam can't go back and save Al's marriage, and so Beth remarries, and Al joins the project, ad infinitum. Maybe this is why the rules of the Quantum Leap project, that the project staff are not allowed to directly influence their past, are in place. The other time this paradox comes to mind is in the Season 5 episode, Star Light, Star Bright. Sam leaps in at just the right moment to witness a UFO and becomes as obsessed with them as his leapy. Unfortunately, the old man that Sam has replaced is viewed by most as being senile, but he is anything but senile to the US government. Under the guise of having his host committed, the investigators capture Sam and have him put under sodium pentothal. Under the truth serum, Sam confesses who he really is and gives details about his project. Unable to do anything to help, Al worries that he might pop out of existence. And if that happens, asks to have everything he owns left to Beth. Although Al's understanding of Paradise appears skeletal at best, he does realise that something bad definitely could happen if knowledge of the project did get out. What if this tape inadvertently prevents Project Quantum Leap from existing, thereby creating a killing Hitler paradox? There is also a theory in the fandom that this confession tape ends up in the hands of the wrong people who use it for other purposes, thereby creating the evil Project Quantum Leap. Now that's just speculation, although it does seem quite a coincidence that the very next episode, Deliver Us From Evil, is the first episode to feature an evil leaper. With an evil counterpart putting things wrong that once went right, who's to say they won't target Sam at some point? But if they eliminate him, they prevent his own project from being created, thereby preventing the confession tape being made, which prevents the Evil Leaper project being created, which means they don't eliminate Sam. Yikes. On the topic of artefacts of Sam's present ending up in the past, 
Now is a good time to discuss the ontological or bootstrap paradox. This is when an object is sent back in time and is passed on to someone in the past, which inadvertently gets passed on over time and ends up back in the possession of the time traveller, creating the loop. For those of you who have seen Somewhere in Time, which has a connection to Quantum Leap, as Jean-Pierre Dorliac was the costume designer for both, an old woman gives Richard Collier, played by the late Christopher Reeve, a pocket watch and tells him to come back to her. He does some research and is fascinated by this woman and her past. To meet her, he's able to will himself into the past by removing anything that exists in the present time to trick his brain into believing it's the 1920s. In the past, he falls in love with the younger version of this woman, Elise McKenna, played by Jane Seymour, and she gains possession of the pocket watch. Unfortunately, a coin from Richard's present time falls out of his pocket, and this anachronism whisks Richard back to the present time, thereby leaving Elise heartbroken for decades until she finds him and gives him the pocket watch. And so we have the infinite loop. The trouble with this story is that there is no time when the pocket watch is actually created or destroyed. It's just seemingly always in existence. In Quantum Leap, this could theoretically happen with another artifact that ended up in the past. Sam and Al are struck by a bolt of lightning during a leap and they switch places, with Al being stuck in the past and Sam back in the imaging chamber. But the hand link went with Al. Even though the hand link in 1945 proved completely useless, if Sam at some point should find it and use it to work with Ziggy, or even reverse engineer it to create Ziggy, then again, we do not have a creation point for the handlink. There's also an entropy paradox that comes hand in hand with the ontological paradox, in that with each incarnation of the loop, the object has to age and deteriorate, and eventually no longer be functional. But this would break the loop. And while the loop itself is a paradox, at least it's a stable one while breaking the loop could prove to have disastrous side effects. The ontological paradox is actually a version of the predestination paradox. While the ontological paradox focuses on an object which ends up in a time loop, the predestination paradox occurs when a time traveller's intervention causes events to happen as they had originally. So another time loop, with the paradox occurring because it's impossible to tell where the information started or ended. Now, mind you, this is a little different to what a lot of people think the predestination paradox is. Often in time travel fiction, sometimes there's a story where the flow of time is always the same, no matter what happens with the time traveling. Harry Potter is a good example of this. There's only ever one existential timeline that happens where Buckbeak is always saved and where Sirius Black is always saved, it just so needed Harry and Hermione to go back and relive that time so that they could do it. There's no paradox because there's only ever one timeline and one set of events that happens, and we can easily tell where things start and end. A predestination paradox happens when we can't tell where information starts or ends. This is actually the paradox which seems to occur in Quantum Leap numerous times with the kisses with history. Let me read a message sent to us on the Facebook page by our new listener, Todd Nieder. I just recently discovered the podcast, and so have been re-watching the show with Heather and Albie. I've been reminded how there was a frequent gimmick in the first season of Sam being responsible for future celebrities, like the Michael Jackson scene from Kamikaze Kid, or most memorably, the Buddy Holly bit from How the Test Was Won. These are cute and funny, 
but watching them now for the upteenth time, it occurs to me how they break the premise of the show, and I'm glad it became less of a thing as the series went on. Buddy Holly especially breaks the premise, because giving Buddy Holly the lyric winds up being the impetus for Sam's leap. It breaks the premise for me because Sam's supposed to be setting right what once went wrong. Even if you argue that maybe there wasn't a Buddy Holly in the timeline Sam came from until Sam leapt back and put it right, that still wouldn't make sense because how would Sam have recognised the song? Now, the Buddy Holly, Peggy Sue and Michael Jackson moonwalk examples are great to demonstrate this paradox. Other examples are performing the Heimlich manoeuvre on Dr Heimlich thereby teaching him the technique, teaching Chubby Checker the twist, and giving Sylvester Stallone the idea for practicing his boxing on meat in Rocky. A non-Kiss with History version of this paradox also happens when Sam teaches Mo Stein, Captain Galaxy, his theory of time travel, who then passes the theory on to Sam as a child, as Sam had written to the show and asked for the theory. It would definitely seem that the information that Sam passes on to these people who then give it back to him in their various forms, causes the loop where this information neither has a start nor an end. However, this is one paradox that can be explained, when one realises that time is not linear. There is an original flow of time in which Dr Heimlich invented the manoeuvre, Chubby Checker invented the twist, Michael Jackson learnt the moonwalk, Buddy Holly wrote Peggy Sue, Sylvester Stallone came up with the idea for Rocky, and where Sam and Mo Stein both independently came up with their theories of time travel, which just happened to be identical. Then, when Sam did travel back in time, he simply took this information and used it to help them come up with it sooner. In doing so, he might have even helped them to do more with their talents. For example, Buddy Holly could have made more songs. A few paradigms that do not apply to Quantum Leap are the self-visitation paradox. How can the same person be in two places at once? Also, the fact that it's impossible to make something of nothing. This is subverted because Sam replaces someone who's already in the past, so nothing new is created. Although it is theoretically possible for the two Sams to meet, since the younger Sam is unlikely to recognise the adult Sam, being in a different aura, it probably wouldn't cause any problems. Unless Sam blabs, or unless when Sam leapt into the younger Sam, that the younger Sam saw the project and used that to help build it a little sooner. Another is the nowhere argument, the paradigm that only the present exists. The past no longer exists after it's done, and the future can't exist because it hasn't happened yet. But in Quantum Leap, the stance is clear. The past definitely does exist, and Sam has to change it. There's also the double occupancy problem, Polchinski's paradox. While an object or person travels through time, it also has to take up space somewhere. What if something else is in that space? But since Sam travels in both space and time when he leaps, it's unlikely that that will cause any problems either. Now, if your head hasn't exploded yet, since we have talked about potential paradigm, we should at least mention ways around them. There's a theory that multiple universes exist, and that time travel is just moving to one of those parallel universes. I wouldn't choose that for Quantum Leap, though, since this means that the original timeline, in which so many people had bad things happen to them before Sam's intervention, still happened. I'm all subscribed to the Nokovov self-consistency principle, which states that every event has a certain probability of occurring, but an event of a paradox always has a probability of zero. In other words, it's impossible for a paradox to happen. If there was something on track for a paradox to happen, then the universe would simply do something to prevent it or correct it. If we think about in MIA, 
when no matter what Sam did to try to keep Beth and Dirk apart, they still always ended up together. That's the universe keeping it the way it needs to be and paradox-free. So we can at least feel glad that while time travel may or may not be possible, the universe has certain fail-safes which will always keep it on track. I think my eyes just went cross-eyed. Hayden's a good writer. He is. I always look forward to his segments because that's about 15 minutes that I don't have to produce. (laughs) Heather, do you have any news? Well, we have our second winner in our print giveaway, JJ Flanagan Graneman. Congratulations. And your print is probably in your hands already. And thank you to Skipper Martin for so generously donating those prints for our listeners. He's pretty awesome. That hidden code was pretty hard to find. You would have to listen to the entire episode last time to find it, and JJ found it. There's still more chances to win a print of Dean Stockwell and Scott Bakula in the episode Mirror Image. And the way you do that is send us an email with the special secret code in the subject line. The code for this episode is Doors and Fours. So put Doors and Fours in the subject line, get it to us, and you are automatically entered into the print giveaway. Thank you, Heather. Do you have any trivia? You're just really demanding this episode, aren't you? I am. Let's get it done. (laughs) So the title references the song One Toke Over the Line by Brewer and Shipley from 1970, an obvious drug reference, which relates to this episode's content. Interesting. I've never heard of that song. Me neither. So in this episode, Sam is watching a movie at Edie's house when she's going through her withdrawals, and that movie was Double Indemnity. Ooh, good movie. It's a classic and uh, has a good plot. Never seen it. It's worth watching. Fred McMurray. He's uh, from My Three Sons. He he was in it. Oh, okay. So there might have been an inconsistency in this because I think animals are supposed to be able to see Al, right? Yes, we learned that in a few previous episodes. Well, the lion jumps through Al, which um, it did look pretty cool. So that's probably why they did it. But I think the lion probably would have jumped around him had he had known or like went to attack him right but not just go right through him like he wasn't there right it's good for dean stockwell that he was a hologram at that time also when sam kneels down to take her pulse he lays his hand on her neck in such a way that his thumb is on her pulse which your thumb has a pulse so you can't check someone's pulse with your thumb and being a doctor shouldn't he know that I did not notice that, but I guess that's an inconsistency. But you could say Swiss cheese. Did you know that your thumb has a pulse? I learned that in school. I would assume my whole body does. Well, but I mean, your fingers, you can check a pulse. But if you went to check someone's pulse with your thumb, you would feel your own pulse. So that's why they check with like a the pointer finger and the middle finger. Maybe they didn't know that until the early 1900s. So that's why people were buried with strings tied to their hand on a pole with a bell. Because they kept checking with their thumb, so they didn't know the difference. I have no words for that. <laughs> true, true story. I know, I know. I feel like they were just making sure that no zombie attacks. So we mentioned in this episode that Sam had icing on his back and that it was cool that it was consistent in the next scene. Well, when they get to Edie's apartment, when he turns around, there is no more icing on his jacket. So either he stopped at the dry cleaner or they might have filmed that all out of order. Or the icing wasn't maybe intentional. 
Because if it was intentional, it would be in the script and they would have put it on in both scenes, maybe. Wiped off in the car? I don't know. Could be on the car seat of the cab. Or someone licked it off, got hungry. I don't know. Maybe there was an extra scene we missed on the way home. Edie was so hungry because she hadn't eaten all day that she was like, oh, give me that cake. Things happen. You don't know. Yeah, I, we don't. I'm Christopher DeFilippis, and it's time for the Quantum Leap Radio Sightings. And after a two-episode dry spell, the vintage and collectible radios have returned to Quantum Leap. One strobe over the line features one radio over Sam's head. It appears on a high shelf in the scene where Helen LeBaron kisses and then fights with Sam in the back room of the restaurant. A white radio that can be one of two sets. It's either an RCA Victor 8X542 or an 8X547. RCA's 8X series came in various wooden and plastic cabinets, and the plastic cabinets came in three different colors. The 542 model was ivory, and the 547 model was white. And while my gut tells me that the radio seen on the show is a white 547, it's really impossible to say for certain. Either way, both radios were released in 1949, so neither are anachronistic to Sam's leap date of 1969. I love the RCA 8X series. The radio is a neat mix of form and function a boxy tabletop set dominated by a large round brass and gold tuning dial center-mounted on top of the speaker grill. It has a raised brass strip on top, which acts as the dial pointer, and gives this otherwise cheaper model some zazz and distinction, making it much more collectible. I have one myself, a Maroon 8X541, that I nabbed at a garage sale a couple of years ago for 5 bucks. All it needed was some basic cosmetic restoration, and now it sits proudly in my library. So when the white model popped up on screen, it drew my eyes immediately. I love seeing radios from my collection on the show. If you want to see the RCA 8X in action, and every other radio featured on Quantum Leap up until this episode, you can find screenshots on the Quantum Leap radio sightings page on my website at deflipside.com. Just click on the Quantum Leap podcast link and look for the radio dial. Until next time, radio fans, this is your Quantum Leap radio guru, tuning out. It's awesome that we all pick up something different from each episode and we all know to watch out for different things. It's very cool. Yeah. Well, I think that about wraps it up for One Strobe Over the Line. Any final thoughts? I don't think so. I'm looking forward to the next episode. In the next episode, Sam leaps into Joshua Ray. I kind of don't want to know. In the episode that a lot of people are afraid to say the name. Ooh. We'll call it our Halloween episode. Okay. Like, he who shall not be named. The episode that shall not be named. Yes. Kind of like the play by William Shakespeare that it's bad luck to mention the name. Huh. You know that one. No. But sure. I'm looking forward to that one. And uh, what great timing that we got to the Halloween episode around Halloween. Hey, yeah, that's pretty lucky. It's like you guys planned this or something. Huh. Almost. Well, you had a year to figure it out, so. Still wasn't quite enough. (laughs) The problem with quantum leaping is that it often left me feeling like a scarecrow, with my head all full of stuffing and no idea as to why I was really there. Maybe we should cancel the spook house. Well, that's something to think about. But if you do, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be disappointed. And the truth of the times is that, well, some people die and the rest of us go on. I could have saved them, Al, if I had a little warning. Don't blame me or Ziggy. We knew nothing about this. Well, if I wasn't here to save Tully, what am I doing here? You live in Coventry, Maine, and you're engaged to Mary Greeley, who's the organist for the Coventry Presbyterian Church. And, uh uh-oh, tonight at midnight, she's found strangled. 
in the church spookhouse. Now listen to this. A second later, the goat tugged at the rag. Tully toppled off the ladder and crashed to the ground. He never got up again. This wasn't here before. Then there's someone with a very sick sense of humor wandering around. Tune in and uh, listen to our next episode. All about the Halloween. I can't say what it's about. Hmm. All about that one episode that Heather doesn't know anything about yet. That one. <laughs> where Sam leaps in and it looks pretty creepy. There is one clue in, in the shot to tell you when and where he might be. I don't believe anything I hear. <laughs> okay. Thank you for joining us on the Quantum Leap Podcast. Remember to send feedback. Leave a review on iTunes, and most importantly, subscribe so you get the next episode as soon as possible. Until next time, I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. Happy nightmares. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast, hosted by Albert Burge and Heather Burge, with contributions from Hayden McQueenie, Jill Arroway, Suzanne Smiley, and Christopher DeFilippis. Go to quantumleappodcast.com for all your Quantum Leap Podcast needs. Join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for special behind-the-scenes content and to find out when a new episode is available. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash quantumleappodcast. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, John Buchanis, and Juan Murrow, with voice talent provided by John Buchanis, Juan Murrow, Hayden McQueenie, Tawny Fenneran, Suzanne Smiley, Mac Jackson, and Peter Vernasak. The production assistant is Jesse Newman. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap podcast is Albert Burge. Juan Murrow and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television and no copyright infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap podcast is a barren space production. I'm sure we'll talk about that and a lot more after the episode recap. Legend. Dairy. <laughs> I'm so tired. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to have to speed us up in post, but, but then we'll sound all right. You're like, and then we. Right. Give us a 20% bump in our speed and we'll sound good. Yeah. We're having a party. Party. Like, and then, and then, and mm -hmm. then, and then. Which is going to sound, that part is going to sound funnier. So, hmm. I'm trying to think that we're wrong. True that. Mark's out. But, uh. They just said Mark's out. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know what that has to do with him. Shout out to Mark's out. <laughs> I feel like I'm high because I'm so tired all of a sudden. <laughs> well, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Okay. okay. I'll just tell my brain. To stop being tired. But I don't ever remember being tired modeling. But again, I was a kid. I wasn't a grown woman. But I think part of it was... <laughs> I was a grown... Wasn't a kid. <laughs> Did I say it wrong? Okay. No, you just... You said... I mean, like, it makes sense, but it was just funny. You said I was just a kid, not a grown woman. Oh. Okay. I was a grown-ass woman. All I wanted was a little R E S B C T. Okay. I was a kid, not a grown woman. <laughs> <laughs> so again, drugs are bad, alcohol's bad. Sleep is good. <laughs>
<laughs> we're talking about how tired she is, and I'm just like, <laughs> I just want, I, I just want to go to sleep. I could use about three days straight of sleep, and then I'll be okay. Yeah, like and, a month. Until then, I need some black beauties, some fours, some doors. Yeah, I don't know how it's Monday, but I need a nap. <laughs> Here, just take these, and you'll be okay until the end of the show. <laughs> you, you don't want me to replace you with Hayden <laughs> or Christopher D. Philippus. <laughs> I'm sure Juan will jump right in there. <laughs> Peter will take your spot. So unless you, I'm unless so you, glad that it's such a an important part for me to play. Everybody's just like, yeah, no big deal. You're not really needed. It's okay. Uh, I mean, there's people ready to replace you if you can't make it. So just just take these, and everything will be okay. Fine. Trying to replace me cut you off from not having drugs. I'm still mad that like that was where it ended. Like there was no more. I don't know. I don't know what. I don't. I don't think they could have done anything in this episode to further that. But no. But maybe sometime in her future, in his past, they get together, hang out. But I want to know about it. You have to be patient. I feel like I'm in an episode of Wine about it, <laughs> where I'm drunk and talking about things that annoy me. Uh, when I was on the Bloodhound Gang uh, from a 321 Contact, we were trapped in the back of a van, and the only way to find out where we were was to use a pinhole that was in the side of the truck and a piece of cardboard we found. Yeah, was this in your memories? That that really happened to you? For a younger audience, you might have to explain what Nintendo is and a basement. Will you stop? <laughs> well, we're probably the only state that doesn't have basements. Um, They'd be called pools. I recognize this apartment. Man. I'm so tired. <laughs> well, that was perfect. All right. Okay, that's it. Thank you very much. Wait, 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 wait. what? That's it? Well, you know, you know, it only takes one. And when you got that one, and then you definitely have got it, and that's it. <laughs>